0: quite this many people. Thank you for your patience. We'll be bringing in some more chairs. Um, We have a packed agenda uh, today. The start, however, is going to be particularly important. Um, Chris Krebs uh, joined DHS in 2017. Um, I think you all know who he is. He's the director of CISA, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency. Long career in cybersecurity, uh, both at DHS. This is your second tour, right, at DHS, second tour and then previously at some of the big IT companies. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Chris.
1: Thank you Jim, good afternoon everybody. Uh, First off, I wanna thank CSIS, thank Jim and Cleet Johnson for pulling this event together. This is a significant uh, conversation we're gonna have today. You're gonna have a uh, nice range of industry and government participation, a range of agencies uh, and perspectives uh, that are important to setting and framing where we are right now on 5G, where we are, where we've been, and where we have to go. Before I start, though, I do also wanna say I have to do this introduction because I still feel like I don't as an agency have the brand recognition that we need or deserve. So Jim mentioned my agency, we're the cyber and infrastructure security agency at the Department of Homeland Security, established last November uh, by a stroke of the pen by President Trump. Uh, We were a pre-existing part of the Department of Homeland Security that owned and uh, managed a lot of the communications security functions, owned the relationship with the Communications, Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. A number of these legacy functions uh, were under the roof of uh, our former organization, but with the establishment of the agency of CISA, it really put us on the map as an operational agency on par with TSA, I would say the FBI, but we're not quite there yet. We're getting there. Um, But over the course of the last two years, since I've been in the administration, joining back in March of 2017, and coming out of industry, understanding the emerging uh, technologies and the risks associated with them, working with indus- other industry partners, trying to get our arms around what are the things that we need to be planning for right now? What are the things that industry is already planning for? When, how does the government need to support uh, and enable uh, US and, and allied uh, uh, industry innovation, what are the things we, we need to do and how do we need to do them together? So that was really the charge that I brought into the space, first uh, in, the, in the secretary's office and then down uh, in CISA in the agency. And so to pivot back a little bit, I wanna go back to last summer. Last summer, a year ago today, we held the DHS, the first annual Meaning, we're going to do it again. The first annual DHS National Cybersecurity Summit. In that summit, we touched on 5G in a number of different capacities. Uh, we had the CEO of AT&T there. Uh, we launched the National Risk Management Center. These are all things that were uh, driving towards increased attention, focused strategy, technical and operations uh, support for the future deployment of 5G. To understand why we did that as the agency, you also have to understand what I see as our role as the agency and where we fit within the administration, where we fit uh, in terms of engaging with industry. So first and foremost, I see us at the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency as the nation's risk advisor. We work across government, across industry, to stitch together a cross-sector coordinated understanding of what the risk landscape looks like and then we're able to pull together initiatives, uh, court working groups and other bodies uh, to manage risks and deploy capabilities and resources to manage that risk. So first and foremost, nation's risk advisor. We also have a mantra. Our mantra is defend today, secure tomorrow. What does that mean? So a number of our efforts and activities right now are focused on securing today's infrastructure whether it's 3G, 4G, but it's also focused on making sure that the next generation, tomorrow's infrastructure is secure by design, secure by deployment. So how do we do that? Mentioned last year, the Cyber uh, Summit in New York, we launched the National Risk Management Center. The National Risk Management Center is a concept of partnership. It really is government agency partnership, almost personified. The concept was to bring together the entirety of the federal government, whether it's the civilian agencies, the intelligence community, the technical agencies, the Department of Defense, everybody together for a single storefront for engaging the private sector on managing risk. One of the top priorities for the National Risk Management Center was 5G, telecommunications, IT, supply chain, and 5G. One of the first initiatives launched by the National Risk Management Center was the ITC uh, ICT Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force. A number of folks in the room, or your companies or organizations, are represented on that task force. Interesting little stat that my team pulled together. We have 20 federal agencies, 20 IT companies, and 20 comms companies. That private sector uh, contingent within the task force represents over eight trillion in market cap. That's a pretty significant representation across the economy. So what do we do within this task force? Well, first and foremost, I've talked about our mantra, our slogans, but also you have to understand our ethos. Our ethos is working with the private sector, not pre-baking a government solution to 98% and rolling it out to private sector and saying, what do you think about this? It's starting more at the beginning Shoulder to shoulder in partnership with private sector saying, here's what we're concerned about. What are you concerned about? How do we address these things together? So one of the first initiatives within the task force was pulling together four separate work streams. Four work streams. The first work stream was threat information sharing on supply chain risks. The second was what is a risk management framework? What is the information that risk managers need? What are the gaps? How do they break through barriers like antitrust concerns? like liability protection concerns, how do we break through those pieces? The third task, uh, the third uh, work stream, was what does it look like to develop a qual- qualified bidders list or a qual- qualified manufacturers list? How do we develop those incentives uh, to, to launch such a program? And fourth, and this resulted recently in a policy recommendation, particularly within the federal government, how do we incentivize uh, OEM and authorized resellers how do we get counterfeit products out of uh, the procurement chain now again I talked about defend today secure tomorrow this is about laying a framework so that as we shift into 5g we have the solid foundation to make the risk management decisions we have the tools and the techniques to execute towards a more secure delivery also within the task force Uh, and the National Risk Management Center, we've launched a couple of capabilities and risk assessments. First, uh, just released today, was a risk characterization of 5G deployments. Uh, Jim, you were cited extensively within that document, including your market penetration uh, assessment. That's important because the policy conversation, often in D.C., is very binary. But 5G is much more than that. There are various segments. There are roles, sub-roles, and elements of what a 5G deployment looks like that requires a much richer, robust conversation. And so within this risk assessment, we've teased out three primary concerns. First, there are technical vulnerabilities in any 5G deployment. There are logistical and there are physical vulnerabilities. So to pull back on the, the logistical vulnerabilities, what are the supply chain concerns? Do we have trusted vendors, sufficient trusted vendors in the marketplace? Who are the untrustworthy vendors? How do we encourage and incentivize uh, more trustworthy diversity of options going forward? On the physical vulnerabilities, 5G is going to require significant surface area, additional radios, things of that nature, so it's only going to increase the potential attack surface for adversaries. How do we mitigate and manage against that? And lastly, uh, are those, um, those, those technical vulnerabilities. As we bring forward, as we deploy 5G, it's going to be built on 4G. It's going to be de- uh, built on 3G. What vulnerabilities are we inheriting from the prior deployments in the immediate, in the immediate uh, 5G deployment? So we developed a series of six mitigations and six recommendations. The first is, from a US government perspective, continue to encourage the development and deployment of trusted 5G technology, equipment, and services. Second recommendation, continue to encourage future generations of uh, technology, equipment, and services. The third, standards ensure that we're sufficiently engaging, appropriately engaging in the standards community globally to advantage open and trustworthy technologies. Fourth, we have to limit the adoption of untrusted equipment. Fifth, private-public partnership. We have to continue working together between government and industry to understand what the challenges are and to deploy mitigations that are collaborative, coordinated, and effective. And then finally, we have to continue pushing for uh, security capabilities across applications and services. Recently, the CSDE, which is a a conglomeration of uh, corporations and and, uh, interest groups, have put together an IoT uh, security uh, baseline. Those are the sorts of things that can contribute to ensure that applications and services going forward will be trusted. But the primary takeaway across all of this is that when you see up here today, you're going to see a range of federal government agencies. It's going to take all of us working together. No one agency is going to be able to engage in this conversation, this dialogue, and these deployments going forward. So it's going to take all of us working together. We're working on that. We're working on that at the strategic level, the policy level, and the tactical and operation levels. We are coordinating within the government. You will hear the perspectives uh, later today from the government players. But it also requires very close coordination with uh, government and industry. Industry, again, has informed a number of our efforts within CISA the development of that risk characterization, the development of a risk assessment we did under the recent telecommunications executive order. It requires the technical expertise, the roadmaps, the architectures. Who knows how these deployments are going to work better than those that are engineering and deploying them now? That has to come into uh, the government space. And lastly, it requires trusted and confidential working relationships. So in part, it's the task force, but also with the recently launched latest iteration uh, by FCC of CISRIC. Those are venues that we can work together to understand what the challenges are, what the concerns are, and how we're able to address them all together. So again, the call to action here is government, industry continuing to work together. Today is a seminal kickoff event uh, down that road, so thanks to Jim and Cleet for pulling it together. Uh, I'll be back around at the the closing panel, but appreciate the opportunity to speak and see everybody and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Chris,
2: or Mr. Director as I call him now, Uh, thanks very much for those remarks and I think it speaks volumes uh, to DHS's commitment that the head of this agency is going to be here for the next uh, several hours and help us close out uh, to talk more about that industry partnership and interagency partnership. Uh, So first, if I bring up the next panel, I want to introduce four uh, terrific folks, experts, who are going to be moderated by good friend and former FCC colleague Kim Hart of Axios. Uh, Kim is probably one of the only journalists in town, I know there's some other super smart informed journalists here who has uh, lived and breathed the communications world and can can tell you the difference between a radio access network and a core network. Um, and she's gonna have, be surrounded by some, some real leaders in this field, both on the technical and policy side. Uh, Jason Boswell, who's the head of security for Eric's North America, um, and uh, right here, Peter Lord, who's the head of strategic initiatives for Oracle. Uh, Susie Armstrong, the senior vice president uh, for engineering at Intel. Uh, I'm sorry, Qualcomm. Intel's coming up next. Uh, uh, and and, uh, and uh, John Godfrey, the senior vice president for public policy at Samsung. Take it away, Kim, thanks
3: afternoon thanks for being here and thanks to our panelists for being here too um, my job is really to just tee up the conversation to let the real experts talk um, and so and this will go by really fast because there's so much ground to cover um, so to just start with a bigger scene setting question uh, to follow what director Krebs uh, laid out John I was wondering if you could help us kick off by kind of talking about what the 5g market looks like today uh, there's so much noise around it, Um, and uh, even I think a lot of the media reports even confuse kind of what 5G is, what it can actually enable, who the different players are. Could you maybe just give us a broad overview of um, where is it being deployed, by whom, what the time frame is that we're looking at, just as kind of a way to set the stage.
4: Sure, I'd be happy to. And today is pretty exciting because uh, this morning, Verizon announced that Washington DC 5G mobile service uh, has turned on, so uh, I can't wait to get that signal. I have a Verizon 5G phone, uh, and, and I haven't added the 5G service to the phone yet. Uh, but I hope by the end of today, I will be downloading movies in you know one second. Of course,
5: uh, that will that'll be fun.
4: Uh, 5G has launched uh, uh, commercially in uh, South Korea and in the United States, and they're certainly deploying it in China as well. Uh, so uh, there's some deployments happening in Europe and the Middle East, but uh, the United States is really in a leading position along with South Korea. And uh, in the U.S., all the, all the national carriers have 5G plans. Um, the uh, equipment provider market is very competitive here in the U.S., uh, even without uh, the Chinese vendors having a, a strong role here, or any role in the 5G market here. but. Ericsson, Nokia, and Samsung are all supplying 5G network equipment in the U.S. Samsung also supplies 5G uh, chips, as Qualcomm does and others. And we have uh, 5G mobile phones from Samsung. So uh, we've got all the parts of the the 5G ecosystem. But uh, it's deploying in the U.S., and uh, it is both a... Mobile broadband service for consumers to enjoy on their smartphone, that's the obvious near-term thing that people will be excited about, but it it goes far beyond that. Uh, We're looking at enterprise installations of 5G in a factory or a sports stadium or down a roadway for uh, transportation applications. And we're looking at a lot more use of 5G in the Internet of Things. So that's how the market's going to be evolving.
3: So to uh, carry on on the last point there, when we're talking about 5G security concerns, where do the biggest concerns lie for, and anyone feel free like to chime in here? Oops, that was my phone, sorry. <laughs> um, is it more on the security of the data itself, the huge volume of data that's going to be flowing through across all of these different interconnected devices and the Internet of Things devices that it enables, or is it more on the applications that ride
6: over the network, or is it both?
7: If I, uh, go ahead. I think
6: it's I think it's both, um, and I think uh, uh, you know with five G as uh, John mentioned, connecting things like uh, with the IoT, connecting things like uh, uh, cars and healthcare and such. I think the uh, the use cases or the applications that run on top of five G are very much a concern. I, I always joke, I'm worried about somebody hacking my pacemaker in 10 years. <laughs> uh, it's not really a joke. Uh, but, um, uh, and, and then I think the, the amount of data that flows over 5G networks, some, some very high percentage of the data that it currently trains AI uh, okay. with machine learning already comes from uh, mobile phones. So I think the, uh, the, with the IoT and sensors and actuators, Um, Uploading data and acting on that data. I think that's a concern as well But I think the focus on security. I I don't think it's a dark. It's a dystopian world right now I think there is it's really good focus on on security. I think there are a lot of good There's lots of good work happening. I also think in the 5g standard itself. There's um, many uh, uh, mechanisms, doing network slicing and such to be uh, so that the air link at least is much more secure than 3G or 4G. Now, you still need security in your applications and your use cases on top of that, but uh, I think 5G represents both some risks and attack sur- broadened, broadened attack surfaces, but also... Um, uh, some opportunities.
8: Well,
9: if I can pivot on that, the yes. opportunities, you know, as as we look at how the 5G architecture changes as it's moving towards the data center on the back end, mm-hmm. that really allows uh, market participants you know, that work in the cloud, right, Oracle, um, <laughs> we can actually differentiate our cloud and enterprise security. Well, wait a minute, we can apply that technology to the back end of 5G, and we actually sell, you know, 5G and uh, telco technologies in three and four G as well. And I think that's the 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 real hidden gem here is that this technology is pivoted to a sweet spot of the American economy, right? Hmm. If you look at how many companies are innovating in cloud, how many companies are innovating in the data center, um, this is really a place where you can take all those uh, things that we're learning about security, how to do it right, how to do it at enterprise-grade scale and securely and apply that to the telco backend. I think we're in a really great position.
3: Jason, to bring you into this discussion, can you kind of break down for us a little bit about the different pieces of the network and sure. how that differs from 3G and 4G?
7: Well, so, so from an infrastructure perspective, you know, when you think about uh, 5G or any kind of, of mobile network, uh, I always think in terms of, of layers, mm-hmm. right? And we, in security, we talk about a term uh, defense in depth. And what does that really mean? Well, that there's, there's, I means there's layers to it, right? It's not just one slice of, of cake, so to speak so when we talk about you mentioned the threats before i think about not just the threats themselves but how is the risk amplified or changed in different way because that one threat may have multiple now vectors into the network not just a a single way in or a single way to disrupt traffic or service so thinking about risk in terms of of those layers of course we think about the RAN, uh, the transport network in between, the routers and switches that are moving the packets along, and then the core itself. And in past days, those are kind of pretty separate things, uh, all the way back to 3G, literally disparate physical units. But as we get closer to uh, a service-based architecture towards cloud-based environments, everything's virtualized, those lines between those segments start to blur a lot.
3: Can you stop right there and just kind of mm-hmm. give a, a description of what virtualization means? In this okay, yeah, so
7: in this context it would be taking an element that has a specific kind of function. Like say I need to complete a call, I need to do charging and billing, I need to authenticate or authorize a subscriber, things like that, or just enable services. Each of those is functions throughout the network. We started with 3G with maybe a dozen to 15, and 4G moved up to about two dozen functions. Now 5G is going to add roughly another two dozen functions on top of that, not replacing, but likely on top of and predominantly virtualized, meaning we'll take that function and we can put it uh, on, a, on a server. That server could be uh, decentralized from the data center, moved out to a cloud, for instance, and still enable that same function to happen. But if that server becomes overloaded or we need more of that function right now, we can bring more online very quickly without literally having to forklift, you know, giant pieces of, of equipment out of a data center, hook stuff up. It's, it's uh, automated and orchestrated on the back end to enable that to happen seamlessly. So that's what virtualization, when we say that, we're, we're spinning up or down functions on top of equipment and servers as they're needed. So from a security perspective, we can do that too. Now with things like network slicing coming into play, we can also spin up virtualized security functions on demand to tackle DDoS attacks or other types of service disruptions or further inspect different kinds of traffic more, uh, more discreetly to ensure that bad traffic is not getting through, right? We can now do that on a network slice, think of it like a virtualized function that goes left to right across things. Um, we also have to be mindful though of the, the vertical aspect of of a network, so all throughout that core, the transport layer, the RAN, we now have vertical components too that go up and down the virtualization stack. So if you put those two things together, we have horizontal paths through the network, and now we have vertical ones up and down as well. You put that together, it kinda makes a, a, a lattice work, if you will. So as we think about risk, tying it back into the threats you talked about before, thinking about risk now, each of those points where things intersect becomes kind of a risk inflection point and then you you add it all together as the traffic flows to the network, it's an exponential risk calculation, not just a linear risk calculation. So I think that's why a trusted network and having all points that, that meet up with that traffic flow, having those be trusted and resilient is more important than ever, as we put more services uh, towards critical infrastructure.
3: So that tees up the next question perfectly, which is how are your companies and the broader industry working together to make sure that there is a trusted ecosystem um, and that vendors trust each other to be information sharing or that the information or the that the equipment that you're um, interfacing with is secure.
7: Yeah. We've done, I'll I'll make a short statement there. Um, It's been fantastic actually. I've been in this industry for over two decades and the work that that has happened just in the short past few years has been moving uh, at at light speed between government and the public or the uh, uh, industry sectors. The progress that we made with things like the supply chain task force, but also working together with, with industry groups and with NIST, Uh, Seeing NIST kind of reach out across the ocean and collaborate with 3GPP and with GSMA and with the IETF, it's all kind of coming together now in this this wave of leading to how can we make sure that 5G is is yes, fast and flexible, but also trusted uh, and secure and that innovation doesn't get left behind.
9: I think I'd I'd add to that where the ability to participate in the standard setting process, collaborate there, but also Mm -hmm. in forums like this, as we start to talk about what are the risks, again, allows these new vendors, uh, new entrants in the marketplace, or I guess new for for this conversation, um, we are able to apply new technologies to that same risk calculus and and actually bring new ideas to the table. Indeed, yeah. And, And the ability to go back and forth you know, amongst industry as well as government. It's, it's really powerful.
7: Like informing with concrete things. Yeah, I okay. think that's uh, like what uh, Director Krebs was talking about before. Like not just, here's the 98%, now figure out if that works or not. Informing at the front end of it has made it, I think a lot more, will be more effective later.
6: And I'd just like to say, so Qualcomm's, I've been in this industry <laughs> that long too. And <laughs> you can do some math on my previous uh, role at, uh, in Ethernet uh, before that. But um, uh, you know Qualcomm does um, much of the the long-term upfront research that actually goes into the contributions to the standards, to the making of the products. Um, without that kind, w- without those kind, that kind of research, you don't have, don't have anything to contribute to standards, and you don't you ultimately don't have anything to make into products and nothing to deploy. And um, we have seen over. Time, you know, so we have always worked very closely with. Um, so we we make the technology, we license the technology, we lead in the standards, and we also make chipsets that go into your phone or uh, IoT devices. And in, in that ecosystem, we have worked very very closely with the with the uh, infrastructure manufacturers, with Ericsson, with Nokia, with used to be with Motorola, with Lucent. Uh, uh, we've worked very, very closely with the carriers because even after all that te- technology and all that equipment is made, it's non-trivial to actually deploy it you know in in tough terrain uh, systems. So the industry has always worked very closely together, and in some areas we compete as well. and um, to to your point, in the last couple of years, um, it's also very uh, good to see that governments are getting involved and that the U.S. government uh, realizes the importance of, of this, um, this piece of infrastructure, if you will, that's as important as uh, your roads and your ports and, and your, your dams.
4: I would add just a couple of quick things, Kim. The, definitely the first, the first stop for all companies to collaborate in this area is the 3GPP mm-hmm. Global Standards Body uh, that's why the world has mobile that works uh, and that you can roam around the world is because of the standards process and uh, as Susie was saying they've, they've incorporated security features into 5G that didn't exist before there's also the open RAN initiative which uh, several of us are members of which is defining some implementation profiles for how to implement the 3GPP standards in particular parts of the network to allow even more interoperability and uh, diversity in the supply there. Uh, And as far as working with the government, uh, we participate, uh, as the others here do, in the DHS Supply Chain Task Force. And uh, it has already come up with some recommendations that uh, Director Krebs mentioned, and more will be coming. It's really important that the government act on those things. One thing I don't think we've touched on yet is uh, In addition to the 5G network and devices that follow the 5G protocols, there will also be a lot of IoT devices that are maybe hanging off the end of the 5G network. And it remains to be seen whether those devices will themselves have 5G chips in them and be part of the managed 5G network, or whether they might be behind some kind of a router or access point. Uh, But in any case, we we would expect that 5G is going to drive a lot more adoption of iot so uh there is a, a multi-agency activity underway but especially led uh, in the department of commerce in NIST on developing some baseline uh, uh requirements for iot security and those will be very important too for for industry worldwide to adopt to mitigate risk in the iot part of the, the system
3: And so much of this conversation and security-specific piece of this conversation uh, has been focused on the global race, what other countries are doing, and particularly China and Chinese players and what that means for the rollout, not only globally, but in the US. When we're looking at how the 5G deployment is going in the US, what grade would you actually give it, give the security component of that? And what are some of, if there is anything, what is the bigger, is there a bigger uh, story or question that people are missing in kind of the, the big obsession with China?
9: Well, I, I'd, I'd jump in on the whole race sure. ar- argument and uh, you know, which goes back to the standards, right? It's not done yet. Right. The standards are not yet complete, mm-hmm. so what we're seeing is we're seeing um, you know, additional ad- adoption on the radio side, and then we still have to f- roll out the full suite of virtualized services on the back end. And I think what we're going to find is that th- that's still a lot of work to do, and that's going to be a great opportunity right, for uh, you know, leading countries like the United States to, to take a, a real forward step and, and frankly, keep our leadership as we roll out all these other great new services. And we talk about network slicing, we talk about all the O-RAN technologies. We've got a lot more we can do, and I think uh, we're not behind.
4: Kim, I think, I think the race that matters is the race to deploy 5G and then reap the benefits that will be innovated on top of the 5G platform. And that's not what people always talk about uh, when they talk about the race to 5G. Sometimes they say, you know, which country has the most patents in the standard? Mm-hmm. I think that's looking at the wrong place the fact is, the standards actually do have patents from many, many different companies and many different countries, so no one is dominating the standards uh, part of, of 5G. But that, that's not where the economic value is anyway. The economic value isn't as much in the network either. It's in the new innovations that are going to be built on top of it. And it's very important for the United States to stay in the forefront, making spectrum available, streamlining uh, cell site deployment, uh, and doing other things to enable US deployment of 5G so the next innovation can be built there. Uh, nobody, nobody really predicted that 4G was going to be used for social media and ride sharing, and I don't think we know what 5G is going to be used for uh, ultimately until the, the platform is deployed. I would give the United States uh, uh, an A grade on, on one thing in particular, which is the cooperation It's happening between the government and the private sector. And uh, there really is a whole lot that's happening, as Director Krebs talked about. A lot of information sharing that's happening, and I think Mm -hmm. think we're doing a great job there.
6: If I could just um, uh, comment on on that. Um, You know, multiple people have said here, and it's true, that it's not like a race, like a running race, where you reach the finish line and you collapse or or win. you know, the standards, the standards, each release, it's, it, the standards go through multiple releases and so as you say, it, the different different features get added in over over time and then of course operators choose which features to actually deploy in the network. Um, but John, to, to your comment, um, it, it is incredibly important that the U.S. maintain leadership in the standards, because leadership in the standards is a uh, a sign of leadership in the upfront R&D that has to happen. Without that upfront R&D and without that leadership in the standards, you don't have the foundational technology that equipment is actually built on. And without that equipment, you have nothing to deploy. And this is it's a it's a much a uh, harder lever to grab onto, you know, how the government and industry help support that upfront um, that upfront uh, R&D, because it's not as immediate. It's things like, you know, supporting uh, the patent system that's given us this innovation. But without without that upfront um, innovation, uh, we, the U.S. will immediately seed Um, frankly will immediately cede leadership in the R&D and and ultimately in 5G and beyond to very competent uh, uh, people in China and so I think you cannot underestimate you know the patent counting and such is not very valid I agree with that in the standards and the contribution counting is not terribly valid either Um, but you cannot underestimate the uh, the power and the threat to innovation that is potentially happening and what will happen, regardless of what day the network gets turned on, what will happen in the long term if we see that, um, that leadership
4: I don't. I don't disagree at all. The, yeah. the U.S. has to stay in the game. We are in the game, and we need to stay there yeah.
7: for sure. Jason, yeah. You want? So, in, in terms of staying in the game, in, in many ways, I mean, I think we, we kind of, you know, we we created part of the game. We we wrote the tests if we're going to be graded, you know. But, uh, you know, if you look at at kind of from an evidence-based standpoint of U.S. telecommunications today, you know, based on the rel- the reliability, uh, the speed, the security that we see throughout. U.S. telecommunications infrastructure today, I think you'd have to say that, that we're a leader in the world in that space. And so we, we would get an A today. Uh, the, the difficulty comes in that, uh, it, it, like going to school and having to take your final every day. We have to get graded every day. So tomorrow it's another grade and the next day it's another grade and, and we have to continue to stay ahead of that pace. And when we're talking about critical infrastructure, and as we move into 5G, critical infrastructure is more and more what we'll be talking about because the use cases will be critical. It will be things that deal with life and limb and and property, uh, autonomous vehicles and remote manufacturing and things that we can't get wrong. So good enough as a grade has never been good enough for us and it definitely won't be good enough in the future. So that's why I think it's important for the US to, as you mentioned, uh, work hard to maintain its leadership uh, in telecommunications and in security and also kind of uh, advance and and further promote what we're doing in standards organizations.
3: Can we uh, pivot a little bit to the supply chain question? Because that was something that Director Krebs brought up as something that he's really focused on as well with the task force and such. Um, What are the benefits of a robust competition when it comes to suppliers? in this area and what should the government be doing to ensure a secure and robust supply chain?
7: Well, I think, you know, from a competition standpoint, um, what we've seen kind of illustrated by in talking in terms of like public-private partnership and all the collaboration we've done is that especially in the US, what we've seen is not just competition, but coopetition almost. Uh, working very closely with our competitors you know, going toe-to-toe in a market sense, but then uh, being transparent and open enough and in the interest of creating the best networks that we all can together to then go sit down in a room after that market bid is done and say, okay, now how can we make the network better? How can we make the standard better? How can we work with the operators better and work with government better? And I think in the U.S., it's been a, a real good good examples of that. And some of those have come out in the forms of of government leadership with things like the NIST cybersecurity framework where we all got a, kind of got in a room, gave our opinions on things, and government ke- NIST came to us and said, the industry said, what works here? Tell us what doesn't work. What's adoptable? What's realistic? We've looked at same things with uh, IoT cybersecurity now as well with groups like CTIA and recommendations on uh, cybersecurity testing programs, right? So we're kind of trying to give guidance on ways that we've seen from a real world perspective work. And having robust competition across the U.S. market, I think it keeps everyone on our toes and keeps us all striving to do our collective best. I, Go
6: ahead. I, I was just gonna say, I couldn't agree more. And one of the things I'm really excited about in the virtualized network space is it brings in people like Oracle into the infrastructure <laughs> space, which you know we never really thought of in the infrastructure business. But I think just as you said, it keeps, it keeps everybody on their uh both on their toes and it brings in new talent and new ways of thinking about um cellular networks you know motorola went away lucent went away and it's very unlikely that some american company is going to come up and start to build traditional uh cellular infrastructure but with virtualized networks coming in we we pull in uh the expertise of all these different uh uh, companies so that's a that's a very healthy dynamic the 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 dystopian future if you will of you know sort of one vertically integrated uh you know company or country you know controlling every aspect the chipsets, the the base stations the you know the standards is um i think that future will not come to be uh, if we pull in a variety of of players and expertise. I I guess we're
4: optimistic at Samsung. uh, We've obviously been in the forefront of the mobile handset side of the business for a long time. We're relatively newer to the top ranks of the market on the radio access network uh, network equipment side, uh, uh, at least for the moment. Del Oro market research uh, has us leading the market worldwide in 5G network infrastructure. Now that may be largely uh, due to our strong position in the South Korean market where where there's been a a kind of very rapid deployment of 5G mobile infrastructure across the country uh, and Uh, You know, the United States is rapidly deploying now as well as as China and some other places. Uh, But Samsung's excited to compete in the 5G market. I think the most important uh, thing the U.S. government can do to stimulate 5G... uh, I thought you might have an answer, Jason, I'd look forward to hearing Uh, uh, it. The most important thing the U.S. government can do is Hasten the deployment of 5G. That attracts investment and supports multiple entrants coming mm-hmm. into the market to supply the network equipment. And then, as far as the the other aspects of ensuring that we have a secure and trusted supply chain, I think the uh, you know the DHS task force I- is critical to that. They're working to define recommendations on what is a secure supply chain and what is a trustworthy uh, supply chain and they expect to uh, incentivize those things through education and also through changes in government procurement regulation
10: yeah
9: so i'd like to add something on the supply chain element you know when we start start thinking about these interconnected networks we've got to think about the folks who may be less cash rich that have smaller networks right Mm -hmm. the rural carriers Are really going to find pressure to figure out how do we get this new technology I think that's where we can come in and and as we look at virtualization and different deployment models to the cloud all of a sudden you can start innovating you can start to say hey wait a minute we can lower your cost of adopting this brand new technology you know we can provide a whole bunch of different ways to access the technology that allows you to compete right you can can compete against uh, lower cost technology suppliers, right? And, and actually be competitive in that marketplace. And I think that mm-hmm. allows you to really address the supply chain risk of everyone in the mm-hmm. ecosystem, right? Not just the, the, the large players, but all the different participants, whether
7: it be you know enterprise users or the small rural carriers as well. well th- thinking about the, the security of a supply chain, some of the, th- the, the things that we talk about in security are also speed and resilience and flexibility. That also makes something, Reliable uh, from a security perspective. So when we think about supply chain, it, it sometimes we get lucky, and, and we have market factors or business decisions that that influence or that, that uh, go with security drivers. And for Ericsson, that that was our case. We started back in 2018, deciding, well, the U.S. is our biggest market. How can we move closer to this market from a supply chain perspective? Because we need to be more agile and need to be able to move faster, get product to where it needs to go quicker. So we started actually a a regionalization effort, not just in the US, but throughout the world to open up new factories. And we were opening up a factory in the US to supply 5G equipment because from a business decision standpoint, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, looking back a year plus ago, when we started to make that decision and it was a business driving decision, oh, let's just be closer to our market. Now it uh, seems very fortuitous in that, oh, well, hey, <laughs> having manufacturing that's closer to the US market has other uh, you know, benefits as, as well. But um, when you look at, at supply chain, like some of the things we we're talking about in the task force is, is looking at the facets of it, of how flexible is it? How resilient is it? Um, is there a way to quantify those things and, and stipulate what, what does a trusted supplier mean? So I think it's, it's good that the program is, is working through those terms and definitions, and then it helps inform everybody to make better decisions.
3: If there's one thing uh, that you're all very optimistic about the, the grade that we have right now in the U.S. when it comes to security and the future and how the, um, the ecosystem is working together, but if there's one thing that kind of keeps you up at night as the thing that people, that, that you see off in the future or the security risk that people aren't really talking about yet, what is it?
7: Hmm. Probably the security risk that people aren't talking about is the one that we don't know about yet. In, in a way, um,
3: <laughs> that's it. Which that's is, good. I
7: know. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, but, but no, it's it's true. I, I, I was thinking about this, and actually, so earlier when I talked about the concept of a of a risk matrix, right, mm-hmm. identifying areas where we can uh, mitigate certain risks in advance, where we can identify. This is where a threat vector for something might come in, in a, whether it's on the radio unit or it's a, 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 a small cell tower in a dense metro area, looking at it through different lenses to say, okay, well now we have a much larger densification of small cells in urban areas, right? So it's not just one big tower. One big tower is easy to put behind, you know, a da- in a secure data center, behind a fence. Uh, there's physical protections that we can make for that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, a 1,000 small cells in New York City that are on the sides of buildings have a different physical component to them in terms of accessibility or disruptability. So in security, we t- we're trying to think of things uh, in, in ways that uh, are not just looking at the threats themselves but the, but the risk. So and that's actually something that we're doing from a quantifiable standpoint in the task force right now is going through that, that uh, risk analysis. And we've got about 55 different scenarios that we've worked through a, in, in a short amount of time. And that kind of informs on, for your sector, so we're trying to look at it in terms of all of the ICT sectors, not just telecom, right? right? right. In terms of critical infrastructure, how can you take this as a, as a takeaway and just learn how to better mitigate this kind of risk? because it might be a different threat vector tomorrow or the next day or a different kind of DDoS attack and it likely will be as they keep changing and morphing. So I think um, changing the discussion a little bit to think about risk mitigation, not just threat avoidance will help us stay ahead.
9: I'd like to focus a little bit more on the need for cross-training. So we've got cross some training. cross training right we have two kind of different communities that are really trying to start to work to deploy mm-hmm. this technology right we've got so the old world telco community where they make certain assumptions about their deployments about how it's disconnected from the rest of the network the control mm-hmm. plane is actually separate from everything else and, and, and we have some really great skill sets and knowledge on the enterprise side how do we make sure that transfer of knowledge goes to the you know the data center And similarly, in the data center and the cloud, we've got some great skill sets. How do we make sure we can apply those to the operational technology we need for running these these networks? And I think it's that uh, cross-training that really provides, uh, it's a gap that we need to, I I believe, uh, really address because it provides a... uh, a challenge for all these communities as we're adopting the technologies and pushing it out. I think there's a lot of benefits from the cross-training, right, mm-hmm. that we're going to be able to address some of the workforce challenges that are going to be as we start deploying all of these you know, sites everywhere. Um, I, I, I think about that as more of an opportunity where, if you get it right, you're actually going to strengthen not only the telco networks that we require, but get a lot of benefit in the enterprise networks that we're supporting in the IT world.
6: I think what keeps me up at night is um, the, the fact is that as a computer scientist and an engineer, there's, um, there's many vulnerabilities put there inadvertently by well-meaning software people like myself or hardware people, um, not necessarily malicious backdoors. And so, so much of the conversation right now is around malicious backdoors that I, I think we're missing the fact that we need to do maybe risk mitigation for all kinds of backdoors that could be, impl- right. you know, exploited by state actors or by somebody in their their garage, and um, and I think in particular what I worry about is the IoT. I mean, back to mm-hmm. your your very first question is uh, is how do we um, how do how do we do that risk mitigation for the, the IOT, which has such, uh, such promise, and uh, how do we take the conversation, broaden the conversation beyond the current, you know, uh, concerns about particular bad actors and realize that we need to do this sort of across the board because security holes can very often be, and I think are most often um, inadvertent uh, Uh, bugs that are introduced.
4: I I think it's the IoT for me as well. If it's uh, devices that are connected to the internet that are not being managed by a network operator, then whoever set up that device needs to know what they're doing or they need to have the tools to make it easy for them to set it up properly. We also had a great example I think it's coming up on three years ago now at the Mirai botnet attack hmm. of what can happen, and we need to not forget about that because there, that could happen again. Yes. And uh, it's not a new threat because of 5G. I don't think there's something fundamentally new about moving from 4G to 5G as far as the Internet of Things related risks, except that I do think that uh, the IoT is going to grow more rapidly and spread uh, uh, more ubiquitously throughout our world because of 5G, and that's really simply because there, there's going to be the bandwidth and the ability to connect a larger number of devices wirelessly. So make it easy to deploy the IoT a lot more broadly. And if these are
3: if all those devices, and that uh, explosion of devices are all on the edge and completely out of control of the network providers and the it's partly
4: out of control. They can they can mitigate if they see something bad happening, but it's you right it's but
3: with with the explosion of it how will is isn't that going to make it almost impossible for you to be able to see everything that's happening on the edge and be able to mitigate it quickly
7: well i think that that threat surface has has increased for sure but as you decentralize and distribute and virtualize a network and you and you move it out to the edge like you're you're your scope from an analytics perspective and trying to find kind of what's a, what's a bad actor or what's a bad flow, even mm-hmm. that potentially kind of shrinks a bit. So your ability to deal with it actually is amplified from a oh, network slot. You can use things like network slicing and, uh, uh, spin up different software loads to, to do other kinds of, of analytics or, um, uh, black holing, bad traffic and things mm-hmm. like that. So if like this whole stage was a network, but and it used to be this one big tower and now i have maybe these these are small cells these little tables but i have a whole bunch of them my threat surface is increased but if i can limit to the attacks really only happening right here in front of me then my ability to kind of focus on it and deal with the problem actually increases a bit Um, iot is certainly still definitely a, a big concern because of of the scale of it and the nature that you know something that's potentially outside of our control can negatively impact us. You mentioned Mirai three years ago. Every year since then, Mirai has continued to be the number two or number three top botnet for that year. It's just a variant of it. So you just take the same thing; it's a variant, and it's it's again the largest or most significant uh, botnet for that year. Three years on, that should be alarming, right? Because that means just we're we're continuing to not fix certain things so uh you mentioned training i think education is important there and uh, dhs with their cyber hygiene and Cybersecurity awareness month and pushes towards the smb on greater cyber awareness i think has been har- very helpful there there's another one coming up in october um, things like that to kind of push down towards the smb space the, it, it's an important decision that they have to make on quality and security and reliability sometimes of maybe making good choices of, of what they're buying, or in some cases, not buying. Mm-hmm. If you're getting something that looks like $100 pro photo software, but it's free for you, uh, you're, you're good, you're, it's, it's, then it's not really free, right? There's something else, there's a give and take there. Right. So smarter choices there, I think, will help the SMB space. It's It's the other side of that coin from the the, the, the telco and providing the service side of it
3: got it and i only got through half of my questions but i know that we are running a tight ship here so um i'll end it there and thank you so much for our panelists for being thank here too you.
7: thank you
0: sorry for the tight schedule, uh, but we are moving into the next session, which will be a discussion, the international landscape in 5G security and innovation uh, between me, Jim Lewis of CSIS, and Ambassador Robert Strayer of the Department of State. So thank you very much for coming out today.
11: Um, Thanks a lot for having me and for hosting this.
0: Sure. Let me start by asking you, um, I've been pestering Rob now for a couple months about What's up with the Prague principles? What do you think is next with them? If people, re- you might want to remind yep. people what the Prague yeah.
11: principles are. So, um, you know, one thing we identified uh, in the last uh, several months is we started talking to a number of countries about our concerns about uh, in the importance of improving five G uh, network security and making it more resilient. We noticed that a lot of countries were asking us what are general principles that should be applied to improve the security of the networks. Uh, unlike some. Some of those would say that we're not we're not out there just talking down a uh, few countries from a few companies from one particular country because of our concerns. We really think there's a, a way to adopt a set of broad-based principles to secure 5G technology. Uh, uh, d- during some of our discussions with other countries, including the Czech Republic, uh, they noted that they were thinking about hosting a conference that was going to focus on how to develop a set of principles across a number of different topic areas, including policy. Uh, security, um, contracting related, to the economics of 5G. And so uh, they hosted almost 40 countries in uh, Prague uh, during the first week of May of this year. And what came out of that conference was a set of principles, roughly 20 of them, across those different uh, topic areas that are, will help ensure if, if countries ad- adopt those set of principles, a uh, free and fair, transparent, and rule of law based uh technology uh infrastructure for for 5G. Uh since that conference, we've been talking to countries about uh more specifics and how you would implement those principles. Uh and we look forward to, to being part of uh future discussions about uh the implementation and what what we specifically mean along different lines of those principles. One in particular that's very important is um, is talking about the legal system and the ability of a third country to influence a particular vendor. Uh, we, have gotten, we, have, we have reviewed uh, the Chinese national intelligence law and are very concerned about the ability of China to influence a vendor to take actions with respect to technology uh, that are not in a country's interest but are being driven by the intelligence uh, services and security services uh, in China. Um, I should say this all fits in a, a, a bigger framework of us saying what we need is a risk-based security approach to 5G networks. And as part of that, we need to look very closely at the supply chain, in particular, because 5G is going to put uh, the vendor in a privileged position of being able to uh, update those networks uh, with the massive amounts of software that are going to be more and more part of our telecom networks and the unique applications they are going to ride on top of those, including for our critical infrastructure. Uh, the additional amount of software means that there's going to be patching and firmware updates occurring on a very regular basis. So that puts a vendor in a very powerful position. We need to have only the most trusted vendors in uh, that position with regard to the networks.
0: You said 40 countries. Um, what's the lay of the land there? How are the Europeans responding to this? In particular, the Germans put out their own principles about a couple months ago. They're parallel to some extent what came out of Prague, but where are they were the others
11: yeah ex- exactly so <clears throat> i think the first uh, first country uh in europe to come up <clears throat> with a set of principles was uh the european union itself it did so the european Union commission announced a set of principles in late march of this year and those were across a waterfront of issues but of course they also included a, a provision to say to look at the vendor country Uh, uh, the the country where the vendor is located, and uh, its model of governance, and the ability of that country to influence a vendor. So uh, that was the kind of uh, initial movement by the European Union to look at this. And then we saw Germany come up with a set of uh, uh, principles for evaluating the security of their networks, which included the ability of the vendor to abide by data protection laws that that apply in Germany. Since then, uh, we've seen the European Union Ask all of its member states to do a national assessment of the security posture with regard to their telecom networks, and those were to be submitted to Brussels in uh, the middle of July, July 15th. The next steps are for there to be a kind of a, uh, a European-wide assessment of security, and then them to develop recommendations by the end of the year on securing their 5G networks. So. There are, I think the, the Prague principles are well-timed to work with this European Union process to d- identify additional measures that have been put in place to secure 5G.
0: What do you think the timeline is for the Europeans?
11: Well, you know, they aim to reach a conclusion on recommendations by the end of the year, but we're already seeing a number of auctions start to take place. Uh, I think you could see some diversification in how different countries approach the issue within the European Union. Um, And I think we'll continue to see evolution of of the principles over time. We've seen a number of countries talk about bifurcating a process where they're looking at technical issues with regard to 5G, looking at, if you will, core 5G security, authentication, uh, who has has access, um, how the networks are architected to be the most secure. But they have also recognized there's a separate line of effort that needs to take place that looks at the threat, that looks at the ability of a particular vendor in a privileged position to take action that's not in their that country's national interest and as i mentioned before because of the ability to add, do patches on a regular basis
0: this one you can skip this one if you don't like it but the commission's about to turn over uh what at the end of october so do you think that will change what they do on 5g or will you see continuity there
11: well, I think you know every commission has a different focus, and they you know build on the previous commission. So I think we'll see uh, additional sets of issues brought into this discussion. In some ways, this process was kicked off by the previous commission, so you'll likely see the new commission adopt it, but also likely amend it to meet it the, the way they see the world, uh, at, at you know at, as they do in the fall this year. Mm-hmm.
0: One thing you hear sometimes when you go to other countries, particularly outside Europe, is they're not aware that there's alternatives to buying what they could use for 5G technology. And in some ways, that's, a, that's a, um, a, sort of a sales issue for the US. I mean, people don't know that they, there is more than one company that sells this stuff. When you talk to for example, that's what you hear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the yeah. US doing?
11: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So we're, we're definitely out there. The first thing we're making sure people understand, this is a security discussion. This is a uh, economic success discussion, economic growth discussion that we're, we're recognizing the, the true high level of importance of 5G to all kinds of future critical infrastructure and the data economy, the ability to do artificial intelligence in the future because it will all depend on the data that's going to be generated by the Internet of Things devices on 5G. So we want to say we have a very positive outlook on this. Um, and uh, we, that's why we need to ensure that we're we're securing the networks. Uh, right now, we have a a, uh, a sort of market uh, failure that's gone on, where we have a very limited number of vendors in the radio access network area that are basically supplying the basebands and the uh, the towers, the transmitters there. And there is uh, inability for other vendors to get into that because they're using a proprietary types of technology to connect their towers and their, uh, and their, their, towers and their base stations. Uh, you know, so we, we're definitely sure to highlight that there are companies that are not American in this space. So we're not arguing uh, about our concerns about uh, certain vendors because we're trying to benefit an American company in particular. Uh, the leading competitors to the Chinese companies are in uh, Sweden, uh, Finland, and South Korea. But the long-term future is to see a broader ecosystem of vendors to get into this place, that a lot more players are providing components to the larger, uh, the, the larger ecosystem. We already have a number of Western companies in the, in, the, in the core network that are supplying the base computing, the storage, the switching, the, uh, the, uh, the sw- switching and routing, and those are companies that are on the panels just before us. Uh, the next step will be to think about how we can diversify the regular area network as well. So we're talking to countries and trying to explain the full scope of, of uh, why we're doing this, uh... who the players are in the space that there are alternatives to the chinese companies that the technology is not any better than, than anybody else that we need to sort of demystify the components there's a great propaganda campaign out there to try to establish that there is one company that is so far ahead of everybody else that there'll be no way that you could go with another set of technology than that company well the truth is uh... there's uh, companies that have basically the same number of commercial contracts out there today and with respect to the united states we're leading the world in commercial deployments in our in our medium and larger cities, and all of those are being done with non-Chinese vendors.
0: And I think the next panel will touch on the open radio access network and some of the open source uh, technologies that might open the market a bit. But when you look at this, who are your best partners overseas? Who are the guys you work with most closely?
11: So we work with uh, a large number of countries that are thinking about moving to the 5G, uh, and so somewhat in the in the 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 eagerness they have to go to five or that that makes our discussions more robust we're obviously working very closely with our five eyes partners with european countries with uh, japan and south korea as well
0: Mm -hmm. um who's your least favorite country to work with Uh, (laughs) Who's not going to answer that that's
11: the one question i i I want to defer on yeah Yeah, okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I will say that uh, it, w- it didn't take long for, for Russia to say that, oh, there's a company out there that can supply surveillance technology and, and uh, a- a- also uh, uh, it, uh, supply parts from, from China, and that was so Russia. So they sort of took, uh, took uh, Huawei up on its offer right away. Uh,
0: that's, that's good to know. Um, sometimes you hear from some of the smaller companies, countries, I beg your pardon, that they feel like they're being uh, pressured by the US. One of them even used the word uh, uh, bullied uh, sometimes. Uh, What would you say in response to that? I'm just, I don't shoot the messenger.
11: You see smaller countries or smaller? Smaller
0: countries. Smaller countries. countries.
11: Well, you know, we know everybody's gonna make their own sovereign decision about how they wanna protect their citizens and protect their economy and the future that they want to see. Uh, We are there to provide our objective analysis of how we see 5G being built out and of the risks that they, we are thinking about, that we hope they are also thinking about. Our economies in, in this world that we live in today are increasingly more interconnected. So it's actually something that's in our interest, but it's also in their interest to make sure that their critical infrastructure is not disrupted or there's not a, uh, a, a diversion of data that would come from their networks and potentially uh, be harmful to their citizens in the long run. We. Very, care very much in the United States about human rights, and many of these countries, uh, all the countries that we really talk to are very concerned about human rights, about the protection of privacy, about the protection of individual civil liberties, and so we're very much aligned on that front. But I think uh, maybe some of the headlines out there might sound, that we're trying to, sound like we're trying to tell people what to do, but we're really having a very, I think, nuanced and sophisticated, sober conversation about the topic.
0: Where does human rights fit into this, and where does privacy uh, affect what you say to people?
11: So um, you know, the, the future of, of 5G is somewhat a microcosm of the larger discussion about the future of data and what kind of rules and norms should apply to the uses of data and how we want to see countries um, use data there's one model that we've seen that I don't think anybody who cares about human rights is, is, uh, is, is happy with, and actually, they're actually quite uh, uh, animated in their objections to, and that's in the Xizhan province in China, where more than a million Uyghurs have been sent to re education camps. They've been in part identified by high tech surveillance, the use of surveillance cameras uh, lined up with uh, uh, photos, and then the use of artificial intelligence to do the matching. There's also been tracking that's done that way so there's one model that says we can use tech to suppress individual liberties and uh the freedom of association the freedom of religion freedom of expression and then we see there's a better model that says users should have better control of their data should have uh, uh the ability to go to a rule of law uh, set of courts a uh, judicial system where they can have their rights enforced in a, in an open uh, legal process
0: sometimes when you talk particularly to European countries, they'll say, uh, but what about Snowden? Um, what do you say back? I, I think it's a silly argument, but you do hear it. What do, you, what do you say
8: back to them?
11: Well, we have a lot of protections around our intelligence activities, and that's a, you know, a comparison. And you know, in no way should there be any, any effort to have a, a moral equivalency between our intelligence activities and those in China. Uh, we have uh, a legal system we have independent courts that enforce that legal system with respect to intelligence activities. We have an open press, uh, a press that uh, can identify problems in our, in our intelligence activities and, and highlight bad actors. Uh, in other countries, there's not an open press that could do anything like that. Uh, we also have oversight by our Congress, by elected members of Congress who have, uh, through the intelligence committees and through a Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. So uh, there's a quite different system in our country, so I think it's, uh, it is, is an effort to distract from the uh, real issue here, which is that there's uh, problems with the Chinese intelligence law, with the ability of the, general speak, generally speaking, of the model of governments in China to have a, a Chinese Communist Party to be able to direct the activities of companies. There's really not a separation. There's really not truly a private sector. Uh, in China that can, that can say no to the commands of the party and of the state.
0: If I was mean, I would ask Rob about State Department reorganization, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, what I'm going to do instead is say, you, you, you wear two hats. Mm-hmm. You wear this hat, the 5G and the telecom hat, and you wear the cyber security hat, and increasingly, it's becoming one. What, how, does it, how does this issue bleed over into your cyber portfolio? Or vice
11: versa. Yeah, well, um cer- certainly our discussions about the potential vectors for compromise of 5G networks are in mm-hmm. the the discussions of best practices are, are really cyber discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really can't have good cybersecurity unless unless you can trust the underlying uh, infrastructure itself. Uh, you know, I'd like to talk about the All of our policies across the board in the digital space are done with our values in mind with rule of law with transparency you know we're probably the only uh, country in the world right now that actually has a department of defense uh, cyber strategy that is in the public domain we are transparent about our activities uh, that is unlike the activities of a lot of other countries around the world who uh, don't do that we also live up to norms of responsible state behavior in cyberspace so we think that's very important to understand. One of those norms is that one shouldn't be using uh, cyber means to, uh, to conduct industrial espionage. Uh, and we know that China is still participating in that. Last December, uh, 15 countries and the United States attributed probably one of the most significant uh, thefts of intellectual property in modern history, which was the, uh, the, what, what is known as the cloud hopper attacks, uh, which was the compromise of managed service providers and cloud providers by the chinese actor apt10 they did that in association with uh, private sector participants and uh, they've been indicted and sanctioned for that activity
0: how much do you have to get into the technical details in your discussions i mean what level do you talk about this at i mean sometimes i know some of the prog meetings some of the side meetings were very technical what does that do for your job and what does it do for the issues
11: yeah, well, a good thing is we have a, a robust uh, interagency set of experts that we can bring with us, and usually we can find our pairings in the, uh, in the governments that we're talking to so that we can have the more policy discussions and the more nuanced technical discussions in the same forum or in the, in the same, same venues. Um, I do think that's one of the reasons, though, why 5G is so hard and why I think some of the, uh, if you will, propaganda and rhetoric about uh, Huawei being this country company that can't be Uh, surpassed and that, you know, the the failure to sort of acknowledge that there are are competitors in the form of uh, Ericsson, Nokia, and Samsung because it's hard for people to understand some of the technical details and uh, it it gets lost in in the overall messaging that there are real understanding about what 5G networks will look like, why there is not really going to be a distinction between a core network and an edge network anymore, that the edge being something that people said, well, if we just put the untrusted vendors in the edge, we don't need to worry about it. Well, that might've been the case in 4G, but in 5G, because of the very low latency, because of the need to have almost instantaneous transmission with all the use cases and all the smart components, you're going to have transportation networks driven at the edge. You're going to have smart computing at the edge. So you can't protect yourself by just having uh, untrusted vendors uh, in the edge. You can't have them anywhere in your network. That kind of argument, I think, re- does rely on a technical understanding, and that gets lost, I think, in some of the uh, very uh, some kind of high-level, uh, like I said, rhetoric that goes on in this topic.
0: But the argument that you can separate core and edge and use geographic restrictions uh, to mitigate or minimize the risk of using unsafe equipment is, um, at least it used to be, advocated by some of our closest allies. So So what what do they say when when you talk to them about this?
11: Well, I don't want to get into any particular discussions that I've had I with, uh, with the allies with the allies about that, but uh, <laughs> I will say there you know that, that notion that you can uh, safely mitigate uh, in, in a 5G network uh, is, is uh, one that we we, says we we think does not stand. Uh, I think there's unfortunately also a lack of understanding of what 5G is going to become in some circles where uh, right now, a lot of the 5G deployments are basically small cells, that is, additional bands, additional transmitters going up in different sites. But when we actually see much more computing and those really interesting mm-hmm. use cases that underpin our critical infrastructure, <laughs> it's going to become world's more important to have actual, uh, to have the entire network secured.
0: Where, where does the ITU fit in, all this, because you still own the ITU portfolio, don't right? you? Yeah, I do. Lucky you. Yeah. Uh, Where do they fit in on the 5G discussion?
11: You're going to make me explain the ITU. Um,
0: Yes, and now on Section 37B of the, go ahead.
11: Starting in 1865, there is a uh, UN organization called the International Telecommunications Union. Um, They are, uh, over the years, responsible for ensuring that we could have interoperability across borders for telecommunications, actually before that, the telegraph. And uh, they're involved in a number of uh, data topics now. And so my team uh, works works on these uh, topics. They are the ones who established in 2012 as the ITU the, uh, the if you will the standard that the specifications need to meet in order to be properly defined as 5G compliant. So they call that uh, the 2020 uh, proposal for 5G. So when the the private sector process. Uh, for the 3GPP, which is the third generation partnership project, results in, you know, we'll have the release 16 this year, when it results in its final set of uh, standards specifications, those will have to meet uh, the standards that were laid out in 2012 by the ITU as, as, as what 5G is expected to meet to be performing at a certain level to be uh, 5G compliant. So, my team's involved in that all the time along with the interagency counterparts. So, the ITU does play a very important role in helping establish standards there. The other thing the ITU does is helps assign frequency bands and the uses for frequency. There's a, once every four years, there's a major conference at the ITU called the World Radio Communications uh, Commission Conference. And uh, that's actually a treaty-making conference that assigns these spectrum bands. So that will be coming up in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt this year in October. Uh, and it,
0: you have we, to go right uh, to i the
11: work I, I, I mean i can go yeah okay. i mean yet yeah, decided there is uh, grace coe from our staff is uh, is going to be leading our delegation there but i'll i'll likely go um, but it's it's important that that helps harmonize globally uh, the uses of spectrum so we can continue to see legacy uses as well as 5G uses mm-hmm. uh, of spectrum because, as you all know, there's more and more demand for uh, spectrum when you're, when you're doing 5G and especially in the, the millimeter wave bands.
0: And on that note, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about one of the problems that's come up is that DoD has to communicate globally. DoD operates globally. Uh, some of what they will be operating over will be on equipment that we may not trust entirely you know in africa or maybe some <coughs> other places um, what's the sort of state department take on that that we have we will face a situation where we're going to have to communicate uh in some way over untrusted networks
11: mm-hmm. well you know there, there's always more we can do to improve the quality of the networks and the reliability and the trustworthiness of those networks so we're going to keep endeavoring to ensure that we see our partners develop trusted networks and trusted components Uh, ensure that we have good pathways for for uh, our information over those networks so whether it's DoD or State Department information which is going to you know 230 posts around the world or other types of communications that are sensitive relative to the US government or communications that are important for NATO troop mobilization we need those to be on trusted networks as we move forward we're going to continue to constantly reassess the uh, ability for us to protect information that's flowing over networks. So if countries deploy uh, unsecure vendors in 5G, that is a serious cause for concern for us and will cause us to reassess how we're sharing information.
0: So that has come up sometimes as a concern that the, if you use untrusted vendors that it will affect, the, if nothing else, the intelligence sharing relationship. Are those legitimate concerns or is it something countries should not uh, take so seriously?
11: We think they should take it seriously. Uh, we take it seriously. Uh, obviously, the intelligence that's acquired uh, by a variety of means has got to be very closely held. People put their lives at risk and indeed die getting that information. So we have a responsibility to protect that information. Uh, of course, our re- information-sharing relationships with other governments also benefit us. We want to continue to have those vibrant relationships with countries around the world for all kinds of purposes, from counterterrorism uh, to non-proliferation, to counter proliferation, so it's important we maintain those, uh, and so we shouldn't allow the communication networks to be a reason that we're impeded in our ability to share information, uh, in the ways that we've been sharing it to, as of today.
0: Um, I was, uh, a couple of months ago I was up in your old stomping grounds, uh, in the, the Senate and the, there was a bipartisan consensus that if, uh, allies used, um, untrustworthy equipment. We should take action against them. Where do you come out on that? I mean, <clears throat> what? It was a very stern statement by the chair and the, the ranking minority mm-hmm. member, mm-hmm. We usually don't agree. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say to the allies? Yeah.
11: Well, first, I'm glad you noted that, that 5G is the one, and one of the few areas where there <laughs> is violent agreement uh, from a, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, there is no partisanship to the approach that the Congress takes with respect to uh, 5G and protecting our communication networks and our, I think, approach internationally uh, on this issue. Um, you know, I, ca- I, can't, I think that's a further step to say what, what else we would do, but, it's, but what we've said is we will reassess <clears throat> how we're sharing information. We need to really look at the, the means and manner by which uh, we share information if they're gonna be on networks that an untrusted vendor can cause uh, the exfiltration of data or the actual complete compromise of the systems or to track uh, people who are on, on those networks. Um, the f- 5G infrastructures that's built out and the many use cases are going to provide uh, so many more opportunities that really be a failure of imagination, which is something the 9-11 Commission said, if we don't appropriately think about how those networks could be misused against our national interests. So we really do need to think very carefully about that.
0: Um- you mentioned standards, and I'm, it's on my to-do list here. Uh, it's
11: the bottom of everybody's to-do list, apparently. <laughs> no,
0: it's at the top. It just, how do you approach standards as a diplomatic issue? I mean, these bodies have usually been pretty low-profile, pretty technical. Mm-hmm. How does state get involved in the standards process?
11: So... We're involved in the ITU, which is essentially standards-making body, which is a multilateral government-to-government. Then there's also all these private sector efforts. Uh, there's other parts of the government like NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, who is a member of the 3GPP standards-making process. There's other parts of government involved in different standards-making bodies. The one thing that many have noted is that there's been a decrease in the number of companies participating in these processes. Uh, There's been uh, a push uh, from China to put more and more of their proposals out there and to have a a stronger engagement in these bodies. Now the good news is most of them operate on a consensus basis, meaning there needs to be unanimity behind a proposal, but there are times when there have been votes. And so it's really important we continue to see the American private sector uh, be very involved in the standards making process. Uh, So that that is a concern and something we're thinking through now is how we can ensure that robustness in the future.
0: We're almost at the end of our time, which is probably a relief. But uh, let me ask you, what's the diplomatic agenda for the the rest of the year and into 2020? What is it you'd like to see done? Don't tell us where you're going, since I know your travel schedule is insane. But what's the diplomatic agenda here? What do you you want to get
11: done? So, One one priority relative to 5G is to keep engaged with the uh, the Europeans as they move through their process through the rest of the year, as well as uh, countries around the globe that we're seeing very engaged as they're thinking about those decisions. So that's a lot of travel, it's a lot of diplomatic effort uh, by not just State Department, by other uh, agencies. The other major effort is that uh, for some time we've been working on a deterrence uh, strategy and in, in implementing a deterrence strategy. So we're seeking to build a coalition of like-minded governments that will act together in response to malicious uh, activity by states. Uh, we've done that in four times in the recent history where we've actually had countries come together and do joint attributions. Uh, the next step of that will be to jointly impose uh, consequences when appropriate against bad actors. We really need to change the calculus of the decision makers in these adversary countries uh, and so that they see it not in their national interest to keep using cyber as a tool to achieve their economic, military, and political uh, desires and goals. So that requires us to have additional meetings and a lot of diplomatic work. And one area that we're seeing uh, a great effort on our part, too, is at the United Nations because there's two working groups in effect that are working on norms of responsible state behavior. There's been 12 norms have been established, and we are, there's now a seeking, an effort to include more countries in thinking about how those can be applied within their, their borders and in their own activities, and there's also been further discussion about the applicability of international law to cyberspace, which we are certain still applies, and I think everyone would agree that international law, international law covers cyberspace, but it's important that we continue to have understandings about exactly how it does.
0: Well, that's a pretty busy year. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything I left out that you want to hit in the last minute or two? No,
11: no. Not
0: really. No, really?
11: Are I'll the- <laughs> let everyone get uh, coffee or yeah. you know no, uh, Dasani water.
0: You aren't talking to the Chinese, are you? That's not on your... Uh...
11: Well, n- not directly me. We have... I won't get into our whole diplomatic uh, agenda okay, there, but agenda. I will say it's important that we, are, we also do talk to our adversaries, we do. So um, uh, we, we do talk to them. Uh, okay. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's important we do so, but we need to do it at the right times and with the right things on the table, and we don't just talk to talk, we talk to actually achieve an outcome.
0: Well, on that optimistic note, please join me in thanking Ambassador Strayer. <laughs>
12: I am a Vice President for Technology and Innovation Policy at Business Roundtable, also an adjunct expert here at CSIS. Very pleased today to be moderating this panel on innovation in 5G, and we have a very distinguished set of panelists with us. I'll just quickly introduce them. Uh, to my left is Eric Wanger, Director for Cybersecurity and Privacy Policy, Vice President and uh, uh, Office of the Chief Technology Officer at Comscope. Uh, Valerie Parker, Director for PE Network and Edge Compute Business and Technical Strategy at Intel, and Chris Boyer, Assistant Vice President for Global Public Policy at AT AT&T. So to begin this conversation, I thought that we would just sort of take a moment to level set on 5G and what really it is, how it's different from 4G, 3G, 2G, 1G. Um, You know, is it all just blazing speeds for our smartphones? We've heard about um, autonomous vehicles, telemedicine, other applications. There's both consumer as well as enterprise business applications for 5G. We're gonna dive a little bit deeper into these use cases um, as well as talk about what really is 5G. So um, why don't I turn to Chris, maybe, as the carrier here deploying the network to sort of kick us off and talking about sort of What's, what's 5G compared to 4G, 3G, 2G, 1G? What's the evolution here?
13: Well, so 5G from my perspective, the bulk of it's gonna build on top of what we've been doing with LTE. So there's two types of 5G. There's standalone 5G and non-standalone. Uh, 3GPP, uh, the standards body working on 5G, is finishing up uh, the standards for uh, uh, non-standalone 5G, which will be used for uh, kind of migrating off of the existing network. Um, and the two big things that you're gonna see with 5G, from my perspective, are gonna be not only the improved speed and the bandwidth, um, the, the better throughput that you'll get with 5G, but a big part of it's gonna be the benefits and latency. Um, so in the previous network, a lot of the design was um, where you, know, you, you had, a, you had a, uh, basically a uh, connectivity uh, to the network where the content resides kind of in the cloud or in the internet, and you're kind of going across the network up to the internet, accessing the content, then it comes back to your device. Um, with 5G, we're implementing a technology that we call Mobile Edge Compute, where we're pushing kind of the compute functionality and the content closer to the user, which will cut down on the latency. So the round-trip latency from the user's device to the content and back to the device will be about half if not more, uh, what what it currently is in the network. And so between the benefits with latency and the higher speeds that we're going to see, um, that should unleash a whole range of new applications. So, Denise, as you were talking about things like autonomous vehicles, um, healthcare applications, um, uh, we're actually doing a, um, uh, a mock-up, uh, I think with Samsung, I don't know if uh, John Godfrey mentioned it today, around um, smart factories. So there's all sorts of different applications you can see, but the latency benefits, I think, are a huge chunk of 5G as well, it, 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 just as much as the, um, the bandwidth gains that we're going to see. Um, Eric.
14: I just want to build on one point, which is that... Um, We should recognize that this is going to be something that happens in waves, that there are different parts to the network and they're going to change at different paces. And so we're already starting to see the uh, radio starting to change at the edge. Um, And we we will see a certain amount of uh, speed increase that comes along with that. Um, You have a transport layer and then below that you have the the core of the routing and switching. And this is where the um, Cisco gear. Um, sits. When we reach the point where we start to swap out and upgrade the core that we're using to run the 4G mobile networks and the 3G mobile networks, uh, we're going to see another dramatic increase in, in speed that, that comes along with that and performance. And there, there will be applications that come from that. I think a lot of us think of this in, in the consumer terms, the, the things that we're able to deliver to the um, mobile endpoint devices uh, with 4G. There are applications that are going to come with the, and, and a, a lot of this is going to happen at the enterprise um, in, in, a, in a different way than we've, we've seen in the past. Um, with the build out of, the, of the, the core and the speed increases and the latency gains uh, latency decreases that come from that. Some of this is, is almost impossible for us to anticipate at this moment, any more than we could have guessed that um, streaming services like Netflix and Hulu would have followed from delivering fiber to the home. There are just applications that are, that are going to come from being able to deliver with very high speed and low latency to the, to endpoint devices that are inside of factories or um, industrial enterprises um, that, that will facilitate gains in, in productivity that we can't, we can't contemplate at the moment.
15: And maybe I can just add a little bit to that. We've been working with um, service providers, oh okay. gosh, how long ago? Network function virtualization started, what, 10 years ago or something. But over the past several years, we started working on edge compute along with 5G. And 5G is really, really more than spectrum. It's an innovation era. And enterprises, even even Intel as a factory or hospitals, they all have their own ideas on how to personalize the network for their own use cases. They want to consolidate workloads. They want to secure their data. They want to um, have multiple IoT devices how do they protect their data? And they see 5G as a way to generate more revenue because they can put multiple slices, and we can talk about slices and what that means, on top of the network. So personalizing the network has gotten very, uh, a lot of the enterprises, small, medium, and large, very excited about 5G.
14: It's slicing is, uh, is one of these uh, concepts that is, is, is gonna be new to 5G that we, it's um, not something that we've seen before where you can, Um, customize a particular set of characteristics associated with the stream. Um, And so you might might decide that a particular application requires very low latency because the the most important thing is to make sure that cars are not bumping into each other or the roads. Um, But the amount of bandwidth that's associated with that might not be that high. In other applications, you might decide that the thing that's most important to you is the amount of throughput that you have. Um, And you can deal with latency through caching. And so if we're able to start to customize the types of services that can be offered through slicing, um, then then we may see new innovations that come from that as well too.
12: Kevin, I want to turn to you next mm-hmm. and talk about sort of the current state of 5G deployment in the United States and also relative to other countries internationally. Um, you know I think a lot of people talk about how China's ahead or Korea is ahead. Um, you know Put that in perspective for us where do we stand in terms of 5g deployment here in the united states
16: sure Um, yeah i think the interesting thing about uh, the u.s is kind of the profile of 5g deployment we have i mean we're we're really covering all the different spectrum options and we go from uh, what t-mobile is deploying at 600 megahertz that low band uh, that that they're going to have nationwide coverage that has a, a large reach for 5g and then you see um you know um, like Sprint is deploying uh, in the 3.5 gigahertz spectrum, um, so that important mid-band spectrum, and that uh, gives you these large data rates. And they're deploying some advanced antenna technology there, these uh, massive MIMO antennas that um, are, are really uh, provide a lot of throughput. You know, get us from that one gigabit per second that we have with LTE to that 10 gigabit per second throughput of, of 5G. And then you see. Uh, companies, I'll let you speak to AT&T, Chris, but you see companies like uh, Verizon. That's the point in the millimeter wave spectrum, you know, and the, with its large bandwidths and again very advanced uh, radios and antenna technologies that are uh, um, doing this this millimeter wave beamforming uh, and delivering just fire firehose worth of bits to uh, to the handsets.
13: Yeah, I mean, um, from an AT&T perspective, um, I think. I don't ha- I don't remember the exact figure but we're there in 19 or 20 markets. portions of 19 or 20 markets today doing 5g uh, we have a couple additional markets planned for yeah, by sure. the end of the year um, yeah, sure. I'm sure some of my competitors are here in the room that they they're also in the process of rolling out 5g so I think from a from a US perspective we're making a lot of progress on 5g I mean we don't when don't will
12: 5G become like a reality? When will it become ubiquitous I think it's a reality now. Every... I
13: mean, I think there's applications of it now. There's actually, I don't know if John spoke about it in the last panel, but Samsung has a device that's out there today being deployed. So there's some aspects of 5G that are being done now, but um, it's gonna be an ongoing rollout. And that's why we say it's in portions of markets because to your point or to the conversation earlier, some of it's gonna be driven by enterprise adoption and use cases mm-hmm. for 5G. So it'll be a gradual rollout. It's gonna take, you know, billions of dollars and several years before that rollout is done. So it's not like you, you know, when when you roll out networks it's not like you magically say oh we're, in, we're on you know in new york or in washington we've got the whole area covered it takes a gradual build out and there are challenges with the build i mean one of the big policy challenges with 5g is going to be um, cell siting and you know getting permits for small cells and um, you know, in or large you, urban I'm areas, actually, will be a major issue as with, we roll out. Uh, so there, are, there's definitely going to be um, issues that we deal with. But I think we're making a lot of progress, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I, th- okay. I think I think it will. So she um, I'll, I'll you know, I, th- I think the U.S. Is, sure. I think the some of the concern mm-hmm. about the U.S. being behind China mm-hmm. is a little overstated, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think um, the U.S. is well positioned yeah. to do. Uh, to make a lot of progress on 5G, I think on the spectrum issues. To yeah. to your point, um, we're doing pretty well there. Um, there's clearly a need all right, cool. for all three of the different types okay, of spectrum, good, whether it's good, low, good. mid, or high Thank band you. spectrum, that work together in 5G. Yeah. You know, some for coverage and some for getting that higher bandwidth that's out there. But there's things happening. You know, the I think the FCC is going to be auctioning off the millimeter wave spectrum later this year. There they uh, they're playing. There's been discussion you. about doing a CBRS band
14: auction see you. next year. Um, well, so I think. Been, uh, so I think
13: we're actually making we doing a lot more progress than people realize. <laughs> I,
14: Kind of I would just add that uh, that uh, 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 Wi-Fi uh, is an important piece you. of this as well too. So there's uh, there are new innovations in what we call Wi-Fi 6 that will be part of the architectures that enterprises will use as they build out their networks. And um, and there'll be combinations of these technologies because they have different um, different prosp- uh, different properties to them that make them useful in different places. And so um, the uh, the millimeter ma- millimeter wave spectrum. Uh, is great for certain things, but it has limitations in terms of its ability to well, be able to uh, uh, be so used in places where you have this, um, it, it uh, objects it, that are going to block the right propagation of the right. waves. So, and so w- we encourage the FCC to, to continue to move forward on the, uh, d- the mid-band um, uh, spectrum and the allocation of uh, 3.7 in, in that range. Uh, you, you had a, a point about CBRS that he wanted to raise, right? Sorry, go
12: ahead. Before we get there, I do want to just talk about sort of the tech stack for yeah. 5G, right? So there's, we talked about components in, in an earlier panel. We talked about the RAN and the core network. What would you say are the strengths and weaknesses of sort of the U.S., um, the, the sort of key industry players in the U.S. when it comes to the tech stack? Where do we need more innovation in this tech stack here in the U.S.? And where, how, can we, can we, how can we drive uh, innovation in, in those areas? I think
16: um, you know we're well represented in the chip space, of course, and you know in the networking space, Um, and then but in the RAN space, from a U.S. vendor perspective, um, you know we don't really have any any RAN vendors, Um, and there's an opportunity with 5G. I mean, if you look how the RAN's evolving with 5G, it's it's um, you know take a look at the radio. Um, With 4G, uh, what happened with the radio is the digital part of the radio separated from the RF part of the radio. And the RF part of the radio went up to the top of the tower with the antennas. Um, now with 5G, uh, the radio is getting uh, evolving a bit more. So the RF part of the radio is integrating into the antennas. So uh, we don't have a separate antenna and radio anymore. They're, they're quite integrated and quite advanced in terms of massive MIMO and millimeter wave. And it's really interesting what happens on the digital part of the radio that's at the base of the tower. That's splitting into two pieces. And it's also being virtualized. So it's uh, you know, bec- being come, uh, cloudified. And there's no longer dedicated electronic hardware there. There's software on servers for the digital radio. And it's breaking into two pieces. One, one part of the digital radio will be near the cell tower uh, doing the high speed processing. Um, the other part of the digital radio will move back into the network towards the core to do uh, the slower c- speed processing. And that, that architecture is enabling a lot of these uh, interfaces or capabilities like uh, edge compute and, and things like that. So, um, you know, there's an opportunity with 5G um, to have new, new vendors in this virtualized RAN space uh, with the, the virtualized uh, digital radio and with the advanced uh, antenna and, and uh, radio technologies. Yeah, I mean,
13: if I might add to that, I think if you. Um... To answer your question, I I totally agree with all those comments. And I think think if you go back to uh, the CSIS report that was published in, I think it was December of last year, uh, they did a nice breakdown of the RAN part of the network versus the core versus the device side, and even at the subcomponent level. And if you look at um, the subcomponent level, I'm talking about things like processors, chipsets, that type of stuff. Um, The U.S. actually is very much in the lead in almost all of those areas. Um, The area that we are behind or we don't really have a US provider is kind of in these integrated solutions like what Huawei, Qualcomm, Nokia, I'm sorry, Huawei, Nokia, and um, Ericsson provide, which are kind of fully integrated um, solutions today. And so um, to your comment about virtualizing the RAN and kind of disaggregating the RAN and breaking it up, um, we have felt for a long time that by doing that, we can actually unleash more innovation in in that part of the network. And because the US is uh, leads in a lot of the component levels, the subcomponent levels. Um, it kind of plays to our strengths because now it becomes more about how can an operator like an AT&T, you know, pick best-of-breed suppliers in a more modular design to build out their network. So I can go pick an antenna from one company, and I can buy a radio from one company. I can pick uh, a baseband unit from another company, and I can get software from a third company. And if you're a new entrant in the space, like in the last panel I did here, we had a company called AltioStar, who spoke in quite detail about this issue. You know, they only do RAN software, right? So so I could conceivably configure a network where I'm using multiple players, uh, picking best of breed components, building out the network, and a lot of those, frankly, happen to be um, US-based or or, are provided by allied countries. And so I think that's a model um, that we think, you know, could potentially emerge over time and deal with some of the supply chain challenges that we have
12: on this point do you think that adopting open standards interoperability you know virtualizing the network will that um make it more difficult for huawei to compete in this market or do you think that they're just as well positioned as all the other you know vendors to to compete
13: i mean i i mean it's hard to say i mean i certainly think that they have enough I mean they're big enough and have enough of cash to maneuver I think in that space. so I wouldn't say they can't do that but I think the challenge will be is that you'll move away from buying kind of monolithic boxes that do all the functionality to a much more disaggregated network which will unleash more competition. Now it's not going to be a magic solution like it's going to take a lot of work and frankly there are other issues that need to be dealt with like uh, in addition to interoperability and open standards there also needs to be transparency. I think Rob was just up here talking about some of the issues with China. There's issues around subsidization that's going to have to be dealt with. I mean, these new companies that are entering the market they can't enter the market and feel like they're competing with companies that are being supported by their governments so there's there's a lot of other geopolitical issues i think that have to be dealt with in addition to that but under the right policy framework of what we'd like to think of as interoperability open standards and some level of transparency about how these deals are structured um, we do think that can help the market that it can it can level the level the playing field so that everyone can compete in the space, which right now uh, we feel like the market is tilted in a particular direction. That's not
14: that's not healthy for the ecosystem. Yeah, just to build on that, uh, if I may. Um, so, uh, when Rob Stray was talking before, he he pointed out that there are technical and non-technical aspects to managing exactly. risk in the space, um, and uh, one of the the elements uh, that is of concern is the idea of governments are trying to deal with um, how, how they achieve the right level of, of uh, diversity of vendors in the marketplace so they don't feel like they're, they're um, solely reliant on on one source of technology. And so while this is not a, a silver bullet, we think that the, the, uh, the, d- the development of the Open RAN um, approach will foster the ability of new entrants to uh, compete in the marketplace over time.
12: How can we get more startup activity in the 5G technology space? I mean, we talked about AlTO Star and a couple other companies, but um, you know, what can we do to generate more startup activity?
15: Well, maybe I can take a stab at it. I think that the, um, the government could um, help with incentives. This is the enterprise starting to utilize the network more and more, so the enterprise is, is coming to the network. And to incentivize, not only for the RAN, but um, if you look at the requirements from these businesses, they, could, uh, they, they sit very near or on top of the, the, the radio access network uh, with MEC, or it could sit uh, on a distributed EPC. It could be on-prem, it could be on the edge. So incentivizing or or building programs around how do we leverage these two together, I think is a good area because these requirements are taking orchestration, um, which is another element or software that's in the enterprise, and orchestration from a network provider, and they need to be combined or or leveraged somehow because if you have an orchestration from an enterprise, you have an orchestration from an operator and how, did, how could they leverage each other? I think that there's a lot of innovation that is starting to happen now and, and from the RAN all the way up through to the core and then onto the data center. So incentivizing these startups and incentivizing the people who would deploy like AT&T and Verizon and, and T-Mobile, you know, in, incentivizing them to deploy with startups because that process in itself can be uh, long-term incoming.
12: I think in an earlier panel, you know, there was discussion about how winning the race to 5G is really about sort of rapid deployment of 5G, right? Innovation is a big part of that, but also spectrum availability, also streamlining permits for cell, small cell sites. Um, you know, what, what needs to be done, you know, if you were to issue some specific policy recommendations about how the government can approach this to accelerate the deployment of 5G, what's your recommendation? Maybe just go down the line. Uh, you can go Eric, quick. do you want to start? <laughs> sort of okay, I, I mean,
13: I think Denise already hit two of the big ones. I mean, the biggest issues are making sure we have available spectrum, particularly in the mid-band space. So, um, you know, there's going to be a couple auctions, as I mentioned, coming up soon. But um, I think in the mid-band space uh, that there is obviously a need for additional spectrum there. And that's been talk, widely talked about. Um, and then I think on cell sites and uh, permitting issues, the FCC is... Uh, Taken some actions to deal with that issue, but um, just from my experience, that's been a, that's always a challenge. Um, you're dealing with local municipalities there, and so there's always going to be some issues with that. So I think those are two areas that, would particular, and I think the third one is what others on the panel have been talking about, which is really enterprise adoption. Uh, you know, the U.S. government, frankly, can help drive the industry to some degree by being a first adopter and helping drive through some of these uh, some of these solutions there. There's a lot of government facilities um, that are looking at the use of 5G. So I think really three things: it's use cases, adoption. It's the spectrum issues and the, and the permitting and self issues that are probably the big three. Here in the U.S., if you're talking about the supply chain issue we were talking about a minute ago, like how to, you know, how to incentivize more um, startups in the, in, the, in, the, in the policy world, I think that's where making sure we have a, a real market opportunity for those startups is a big deal, and that's where things like interoperability, open standards, those are the things that come into play there.
15: Yeah, I would tend to agree um, and uh, add and add there's, there's different things when you think about smart cities or hospitals, all different types of um, consumers walk into those facilities and there's all kinds of workers. So the ability to have multiple, multiple operators in that same facility is gonna be an area of innovation as well. So I think that's, that's a, a place to kind of focus in the public and the government facilities would be a good option to pilot that.
16: Yeah, I think um, anything we can do to um, have you mis- municipalities, you know, accept reasonable aesthetic um, solutions for what a, a cell site or a, a small cell site would look in a in an area. I mean, right now we we go and we develop a, a nice package, and you'll go to one municipality, and they'll you know, they'll want something six inches longer or just a different, certain look. So if there were some sort of standard profiles that, um, you know, that could be uh, regulated or, um, you know, to help with that process, uh, it'd go a long way than, uh, you know, having a different custom uh, solution for every uh, town or city in the United States.
14: Well, I think the, the key point um, is that there, there's going to be a difference here from what we've seen in the consumer space and recognizing that, um, that that's going to require some new flexibility for uh, enterprises. I, I guess I have more questions than I have answers about what that's going to look like. But having uh, making sure that we are considering the, the needs of enterprises as, as they're trying to figure out um, what type of, of, um, of slices are going to work well for them, whether or not we need to have some specialized services that are focused on uh, particular segments of industry and the types of slices that might go along with that. Um, there may be some, some need for um, uh, new ways to think about sharing spectrum in places that we have incumbent tenants. So I know um, Kevin can talk a little bit further about that, but uh, there are some um, ideas for how to do that and um, as well there may be some uh, utility that comes from uh, giving some freedom to uh, license spectrum to enterprises for their use inside of their spaces and thinking about how we put this all together as i I noted before with uh with the next generation of wi-fi i think will be a key piece of how we spur innovation in in the enterprise space which i think would then spur demand and um and help to uh, make sure that the investments that are made by the carriers in building these networks out um, are, are paid off by people actually using them.
12: So I do want to um, give the audience an opportunity to ask some questions for our panelists here. While you're thinking of your question, I do want to ask the panel one one question, which is rural broadband. So we're talking about deployment. A lot of the use cases we're talking about are urban use cases, smart cities, autonomous vehicles. Most people tend to think of sort of you know, urban environments when they think about those applications. But rural broadband is now a major political issue. Um, um, you know, we hear these stories about kids not being able to access the internet to do their homework in some rural communities. Um, you know, what do you think is the solution to that? What, what do you think, um, you know, ought to be done um, that we're not already doing, or or do you think that we, we're on the right sort of policy track here?
16: Well, I think it's about spectrum, and you know, I think there's some good news here. Is um, you know, the CBRs spectrum is, is becoming available, and that's some of this important uh, three point five gigahertz spectrum that has um, you know the, the the large bandwidths that can can help uh, drive the sort of capacity you need uh, for a world deployment. Um, And it also supports different advanced antenna technologies that can help that signal reach out further in in rural areas. And, of course, that's key to the economics to have, have, uh, you know, fewer cell towers as you cover uh, uh, rural uh, broadband.
12: Any questions from the audience? Uh, Okay, right over uh, here and here. Um, Do we have microphones?
8: name's Dave Onspock, retired uh, is this thrown us out there uh, do you know if the, uh, the f- um,
10: for
14: let's say informal renters who rent rooms in people's houses, for example, and the informal renter wants a certain you know telecom service that has the television and
1: the music and all that stuff uh, do you think well, do you know if, if the 5 g will make it easier to get? That, that service without having to require the property owner's permission that doesn't require uh, hardware to be bolted on or built into the property owner's house compared to the 4G, do you know?
14: Uh, I'm, or will that be easier for an informal renter to get a telecom service directly to them, even if they uh, are renting a room in somebody else's house? Thanks. That's my question. Thanks. Thank
12: you. Uh, I'm not sure that our panel is best positioned to answer that question. Uh, if, I don't know if someone well, wants to take that one. Or you, you can
15: it's search. technically feasible. Yeah. Yeah. We, can,
12: we can say that. It's technically
15: feasible. It all comes down probably to the business model. Yeah. But um, it, with edge computing, you can, you can get things cached. Um, now your own personal data, um, again, it's probably gonna come down to a business model between the B&B and, and the operator's right.
12: And we have a question up here in the front. Uh, Microphone, please. And if you don't mind just introducing yourself as well.
8: Uh, Chris McCray, Norman McCray Foundation. So uh, I have a question. It's really sort of about inclusivity, but also diversity. Because it seems to me we're talking about so many different sorts of things that 5G could be about. And I'm wondering if there's a difference between the kind of security and everything you need for let's say very local things l- like education compared with you know global things like security uh, and, and safety and whatever uh, and are we muddling up in a way you know or are, is there danger we might be stopping things which the vast majority of people need most but which are not maybe the same as Uh, you know, international security. Uh, So it's 5G really a lot of different things, and we're getting a bit muddled as to which are the priorities that different people in different places actually want.
14: Well, I I don't think that we're taking anything away. The question was whether or not 5G is going to displace uh, technologies in a way that are going to change our priorities, um, as I understood the question. And and I I think that I look at this as being, um, yes, it's a new wave of technology, Um, It's building on things that have been there before, and then in some cases we will uh, replace, over time, older technologies. Um, But I I don't believe that we are changing our priorities and and making it impossible to do the things that we're currently doing by virtue of, 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 uh, of adopting these changes. Over here.
9: Hi, David Winks with AccuSight. As we think about the possibilities of 5G and how integral it's going to be to all of our lifestyles, one of the other areas that we might want to consider as we think about reducing risk and security is to harden these systems against electromagnetic weapons. Um, You know, we see them in the movies, but they're becoming real, they're being fielded, we're actually shooting down drones in the Persian Gulf with them. Um, Have you given some thought on how you might be able to to put that in your requirements set going forward.
13: So is that a security question? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, so there's there's, there's I mean, there's obviously a lot of attention being paid to 5G security in and of itself. Like, you know, so there's multiple security issues, but um, there is an effort underway at the standards body at 3GPP, there's a group called SA3 that's focused entirely on security standards for 5G deployments. So there's um, enhancements to security, basically taking lessons learned from LTE, 4G, 3G, et cetera, kind of baking in security um, into the standard itself. You know, how that will be applied to drones, for example, and those types of technologies, I don't know for sure. My, my best guess is that um, you'll have security in the standards for 5G, and then for specific implementations um, for drones and other devices, you'll see additional security layered on top of that. Um, so the, the 3GPP standards are really about the network, right? How do you secure the network and all the capability? But at the device side, you're going to need additional security protections um, on individual devices as well to kind of to ratchet it up. And, and the security controls should be commensurate to whatever the functionality of the device is. So a drone will have certain you know, security requirements in addition to what the network's doing. If you're talking about you know, a consumer device, it might have... Um, you know, less requirements than if it's a government type of device like what you're talking about. Um, so, but I think that's all part of the conversation right now is how do we build in better security standards into both the network side and also into the consumer, into the device side as well.
15: And part of that technology, too, is um, we've, at Intel we put in things like uh, secure enclaves. So you can, as you onboard a device, as that device gets onboarded, there's a secure device onboarding. That happens through the network. So you know that that is the right device, that it has the right ID, that has the right capabilities before any data gets transmitted across. So those security assets um, are coming into the network and as, and as well as to the edge compute.
14: So building on from the, last, uh, the panel that, that took place earlier, uh, there was some discussion around the change in the threat landscape that comes from uh, bringing more compute power to the edge of the network. Uh, but at the same time, I guess maybe I'm just an optimist about technology. I think as, as you just heard from uh, Valerie and, and from uh, Chris, we're adding security this, to, this, uh, to this wave of technology right from the beginning based on uh, lessons learned. We're building on technologies that are already in place with 4G as we move to 5G. And then uh, as described by Valerie with the ability to um, uh, securely onboard, onboard devices, Hopefully, we can leverage the power of the network as well too to add more visibility and control um, as we bring more compute to the edge of the network too.
13: Yeah, there's some really specific benefits for security in 5G that you could talk about. Um, you know, there's been a lot of public documents about that. You can go look at the FCC Ciswick report uh, that was published um, earlier this year. They're actually doing a continuation of that in the in the upcoming Cisric. So. Uh, there's been a report that was done by 3G Americas, uh, CTIA has done work on this topic. Uh, like I said, 3 gpp SE3. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion, but one of the big things is with, with edge compute, um, we can take as an operator a lot of the security tools that we use in the core of the network and push them closer to the edge. And now you can start to do traffic monitoring, you can start looking at flows, you can, you can try to identify things happening You know closer to the user. So there's a lot of different things that are happening with 5G as we kind of push the core infrastructure closer to the user, um, and then we can bake. We think we can bake in you know better security than what we've seen in previous generations of wireless technology by leveraging that infrastructure. That, I mean, 5G is as much about changing how the network is architected as it is about you know all the other parts that are going on. So that so that change in the network architecture, the edge computing model, I think really it could change the game for security. But um, a lot of that work is underway as we speak.
15: Yeah, you can think of it as stopping the rogue. Data or rogue in, in, in impacts right at that edge before it, right. before it ever traverses the network. Right.
16: You know, as far as electromagnetic threats to, to the radio, I think yes about that. You know that that's really not something that's been considered. You know, I think to to put the sort of chips in there, the military-grade chips to, to you know be secure against that threat would probably make the, the radios in the network uh, you know prohibitively expensive. So. Yeah. Um, that's, then, a separate, that's a separate matter from what yeah. I, was, I was
13: speaking more to cyber security yeah. and hacking, but as you're talking more about physical physical, yeah, physical electromagnetic issues, which is a separate matter for sure.
12: I think we yeah. have time for one more question. Uh, is there any in the audience over there?
9: Hi, Kyle Smith, Smith's Laboratories. I understand with LTE that my radio and my cell phone can connect 45 miles away the reason why the FCC would regulate that, why the telecommunication companies would operate that. You can only connect 1,000 feet to a Wi-Fi device, and with 5G, 1,500 feet. Why is there a presumption that the telecommunication companies need to organize and, and uh, you know, provision the devices onto the network, and the FCC needs to regulate the spectrum, when it could be public spectrum like Wi-Fi, and it could be, instead of small site licensing and regulation, all these things you're talking about that are hindering the deployment it could be operated
13: as a Wi-Fi network. That's a policy question. Yeah, that gets into licensed versus unlicensed spectrum. and It's been a hotly debated topic for a number of years. But I think from an operator's perspective, we certainly think that there's benefits in both terms of performance and um, capability that come with licensed spectrum. I mean, I'll just leave it at that, but that's been a debated issue for a long
14: time. But as I mentioned, there are innovations that are taking place in that unlicensed space too. So these things are going to work together in concert with each other. The architecture of these networks is going to incorporate elements of both of these types of spectrum, uh, sitting side by side and working hand in hand.
16: Yeah, there there is uh, new technology being deployed soon in the CBRS band where the shared spectrum is going to be enabled where the spectrum will both be handled as an unlicensed spectrum where anyone can have access to it or as licensed spectrums, with
14: a priority license uh, given to just just to g- a quick, uh, give a quick example of that, um, the cell phone that I use today um, happens to be an AT&T phone, but it has um, it has the capability to backhaul some traffic over over Wi-Fi networks. So, um, so these things are working together in concert today. And we're we're going to see more of that as we move forward.
12: I think one final question for me to wrap this up, which is, um, you know, I think we've talked about how to Generate more um, innovative activity in the 5G in the 5G tech stack. We've talked about you know competition, especially with other countries. Um, how do we get more R&D activity in this in in in, in, in the tech stack? So for example, we've been talk, talking about how uh, Huawei is spending significantly more in R&D than many of the other players. Um, what can the U.S. government do to help? sort of coordinate R&D activity? Um, or, or is this something that industry can sort of do on its own?
14: Well, I like something that Chris said before, which is that, uh, and we saw this with the adoption of cloud computing, that sometimes people, uh, the, the US government kind of gets a bad rep as being uh, behind the curve, but actually, and a lot of places, when the U.S. government adopts a technology, it serves as a signaling function to the rest of the, um, uh, to the, the, rest of the market that it is um, uh, worthwhile investing in. And so um, seeing some uptake of the technology, some <coughs> investment by the, the government in the, in the um, adoption and use of technology would undoubtedly help to spur the rest of the market growth.
13: Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I think government can play a key role in being an early adopter and kind of pushing the industry along. It can demonstrate to enterprise businesses that this is something that uh, is useful and can be worth deploying. So this can, they can certainly go there. I also think the issue around R and D funding and uh, what's the role of government. Uh, you know, we're in the process of working on an instack report right now. Um, uh, on this whole topic of uh, emerging technologies. And it it really goes beyond 5G. It goes into things like quantum computing. It goes into artificial intelligence. But it gets down to, does the US have a national strategy, a cohesive national strategy across the board for for these technologies, both in the US and with our allies, Um, To support R&D for these critical technologies and you know, um, you know, we don't really do um, I guess uh, maybe we do But I'll argue that we don't typically do industrial policy here domestically in the US That's kind of a you know not a term that we would typically use in a capitalist country But um, but there is some form of that and I think having an innovative strategy having a, a policy strategy around how to incentivize R&D in these critical technology areas, in particular when we're dealing with um, other nation states that are that are pooling money together in that same way is something that we need to think about and something that the, the government probably needs to pay closer attention to going forward, not just in 5G, but in a w- wide range of uh, critical core technology areas.
12: Well, thank you. I think we have an excellent roadmap for what we need to do to make sure that the US wins the race in 5G. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists.
2: Thank you. we had a, a, a rich day of discussions here and we're gonna close it out with, uh, with something we were talking about in the, in the background. Uh, this is in many ways an historic panel. Uh, we have uh, the, the FCC commissioner, Jeffrey Starks, who's taken, a, uh, in his uh, n- nearly six months of, of time as a, con- as a commissioner, <coughs> has really jumped out in a leadership position on these issues. We're gonna hear some of the things that that he and the FCC more generally have in mind. It's sent here with uh, with Chairman Pye's uh, uh, blessing to re- both represent Commissioner Starks himself and also the FCC as an institution. Um, we have Jennifer Lane from the Department of Commerce, senior counsel uh, in the Office of General Counsel. Works in the Secretary's office and oversees all of the elements of the Commerce Department that are working on supply chain EO, the uh, supply chain executive order, uh, and, uh, and, and related issues. Uh, and then we have uh, Director Chris Krebs uh, of, the, uh, of DHS at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, um, the, the head of agency that kicked things off. And the reason I say that this, is, that this panel is, is historic is because having worked in and with all three of these agencies uh, over the past uh, 10 or 12 years, I can say that most of the time that these agencies are on, uh, are in the same room or on the same panel. It's usually an argument. Uh, it's 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 fighting over territory. It's saying these are my authorities. Those, those are my. This is this is my lane. Please stay out. Um, and what we're going to do today is something a little bit different because the purpose of this panel uh, is to talk about. Uh, how these three agencies that are at the core of 5G security uh, governance in the United States uh, support each other, uh, contribute to each other's work, and also contribute to the international uh, elements that, that Ambassador Strayer was talking about earlier. Uh, who does what, why, and how does it, how does it uh, fit together? I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, uh, if it's fully a, a well-oiled uh, team at this point, but I wanna hear about where uh, where the partnerships are and uh, where improvements need to be made uh, to face uh, uh, this, this security challenge. Um, so, with that, I'd just like to ask you all just to let's open things up with uh, a discussion of what are your agency's uh, uh, particular areas of expertise, authority, what are your roles and responsibilities, and most importantly, how do they fit together to secure 5G in the United States?
10: I'm closest, I'll go first. All right. Go for it. Yeah. All right. uh, well, first of all, glad to be here uh, and certainly with uh, sister agencies here. Um, and, uh, you know, at the FCC, uh, and I am um, uh, fully believe that network security is national security. Uh, and that point cannot be understated as we're thinking about uh, a 5G world. We're talking about a world where there's going to be an explosion uh, of devices. The Internet of Things is going to have... Countless more devices out there. All of it's going to be interoperable. Uh, And so it is really important that we start to think about these issues um, right now. The most important thing, obviously, um, you know, we know that commerce is clearly in charge of uh, some of the kind of economic policies, DHS very much in charge of national security. But there is a specific FCC lane that is important. We are the regulators, of course. Uh, that are in charge of a lot of the relationships, uh, in charge of carriers, in charge of networks. We're talking about uh, the networks that are going to carry our financial information, our transportation information, our healthcare information. Uh, And we really are kind of the tip of the spear from the regulatory uh, standpoint. Um, And so I think uh, we're always going to have a certain role here to play. We're going to dig into that a little yep. bit
2: further, and I know uh, just start off by by saying that I know that the commission unlike uh, unlike Department of Commerce and DHS is consists of five different Senate confirmed commissioners, all of whom have different uh, uh, a different approach to things and while there is a chairman, no nobody is in charge of the of the other commissioners so uh, we 'll we'll talk a little bit about some of the differences in in that, but also at the, uh, how there's, there's a commonality at, at the base in terms of securing the network. Yeah,
10: and really quickly on that point, I think that's exactly right, because some of us would read more uh, from our statutory perspective. We certainly, under the Com- Communications Act, you know, section one tells us, it is animated by national defense. Uh, and says specifically that we are to uh, have networks and communications that protect life and property. So there certainly is an animating purpose um, that uh, uh, almost all the commissioners would sign on. Um, but we are part of a whole of government, but there is an FCC link.
2: So let's talk about commerce. Is there anything going on in commerce you in know, this area right
5: now? We stay busy these days. Um, yeah. So commerce, the behemoth that it is, um, we have multiple bureaus within the department that are geared at working on 5G. Um, And we have from the highest levels of the department, the mandate that when it comes to 5G, when it comes to supply chain and these issues, that we bring the best of of commerce to each of these issues. And so while each of our bureaus have their specific mandates, have their specific missions, what we're doing is making sure that we're having, identifying those cross bureau equities and making sure that there's collaboration across the department of commerce. So we leverage everyone. But specifically with 5G, Um, When it comes to exports and exports controls, we have our Bureau of Industry and Security um, at the department. Um, When it comes to the telecommunications aspect of things, we have our national um, information, Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, that is highly involved. When it comes to standard settings in 5G, we have our National Institute of Standards uh, and Technologies, which is NIST. Um, At the department and so therefore and again working with our office of general counsel um, our lawyers And then also with the office of secretary We are coordinating um, on 5g to make sure that we bring a whole of commerce approach to everything with that said while we are doing a lot of interdepartmental coordination We absolutely understand that all the answers to the questions as they relate to 5g do not reside in And so, therefore, we look to our sister agencies, DHS, the FCC, um, uh, intelligence as well, to help us as we are developing our policies, rules, regulations, um, because we understand that really to tackle these issues, it is a whole-of-government approach. And so, while we are very much um, adhered to our mission and want to make sure that we have our lane carved out we understand that we really can't effectively even do our mission without leaning on the work of others.
2: And is that taking place in the, in the executive order uh, uh, implementation?
5: Absolutely. Um, and definitely. I mean, one, by design, the executive order is meant for interagency yeah. collaboration. I think there's a laundry list of, <laughs> of yeah. mandated agencies that we must consult with but it will get the better product by doing it. And so while the Secretary of Commerce has been delegated specific authorities, when it comes to reviewing and potentially prohibiting transactions, by no means are we going it alone. Um, And it has been a full-blown interagency collaboration process since the executive order has come out and will continue to be so moving forward. Is that
2: a formal process, like through the NSC or? Definitely.
5: Um, So NSC has a, what we call a sub-policy, coordinating committee um, that is geared at just implementation of the executive order, um, the supply chain executive order, but there are many um, sub PCC groups um, that are affecting different areas within 5G. Um, But yes, it's NSC-led, they bring Mm -hmm. us all together, but also there are many conversations. I know I've been heavily involved in that and I have many side conversations where I just pick up the phone and say, hey, I need to actually talk to DOJ on this issue Mm -hmm. or I wanna go and talk to FCC about this. Um, Also because of the breadth of that executive order specifically, it's not just telecommunications, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've had to reach out to other agencies that touch different industries to get their input as well. So lots of coordination across the board.
1: So, you know, the Department of Homeland Security's role here uh, goes back to the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security and the authorities granted to the Secretary of Homeland Security uh, leading and coordinating the nation's critical infrastructure protection activities. Uh, Communications is a critical infrastructure sector, just like IT and financial services and energy. And what happens is now there's 16 critical infrastructure sectors, and each one of those sectors by presidential uh, designation is assigned a sector-specific agency lead. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security of those 16 sectors represents 10 as a sector-specific agency. uh, For comms and IT, uh, DHS is the lead and that has devolved down to me so what that really means is this is not an enforcement or a regulatory authority it's a partnership authority and historically that's a pretty cliche term in DC but now we are very much more focused on operationalizing the partnership so I talked earlier about the risk characterization and I talked about bringing industry in from the beginning and helping us understand how the network is gonna be deployed in 5G, what the attributes are. Uh, And then we bring that back into our risk management capability. And just to pause there, when we think about risk management, we're not just thinking about cybersecurity. I already talked about physical vulnerabilities. We think about uh, supply chain vulnerabilities. We think about insider threat. It's truly uh, moving towards a more holistic risk management approach, looking down across the various verticals. Uh, Again, not just the ones and zeros part. Um, but you know, we are the ones, again, that work with industry, pull it all together. We have commerce expertise in DIA, NIST in particular, uh, Department of Defense, the intelligence community, the IC is gonna speak next, you just can't see them. <laughs> they bring their threat information, they feed into our risk management analysis. We work with industry to understand what the impact is, and then we draw out this characterization. So you talk about the interplay within the executive order, the way sequentially the EO goes is that the intelligence community does a threat assessment of 5G. That then feeds into my risk assessment of 5G, which then goes into and feeds into the regulatory, whatever that ultimate decision is. So we've, we consumed, uh, we are consumers of the intelligence community's output and exhaust. We pulled that into the risk assessment and it's preliminary, it's going through the internal routing right now. But ultimately, the idea is how do we characterize or how do we scope this problem, this assignment within the executive order? And it's a work in progress still, but ultimately we look at, there are five key uh, elements or, or, or roles within the, the ICT supply chain that, that feed into at least the current uh, communications infrastructure and the way we see it. Uh, and then we were able to subdivide that into sub roles and then get that down into elements. And ultimately that we've been able to spit out about 61 elements of the things in uh, the ICT supply chain. And uh, of those, we have to make criticality assessments. Then that is what then feeds into the commerce process and commerce makes their decisions uh, through their normal process. But again, you know, our role is to be this kind of much like the IC is the independent arbiter of intelligence, we are that independent arbiter of uh, risk assessment and understanding risk as it manifests across uh, critical infrastructure.
2: Let me ask a specific question about, uh, so we're talking about the supply chain executive order now where your uh, commerce is grappling with, um, you know, how, with, with uh, as I understand it, rules that will be coming out at some point before the 150-day mark, uh, October 12th, I think is the date. Um, there's a lot of understanding that uh, it, they will come out as interim final rules, but not to get into the regulatory we- weeds, but that those will be rules that are issued and they're in effect upon issuance, as opposed to the way Commissioner Starks and team do it at the FCC, which is a proposed rule where you put something out, it's not into, in effect, but on either side there will be comments. Is it is can we expect interim final rules or an NPRM or is it too early to to say
5: so we're currently having discussions with the NSC because while the Department of Commerce ultimately is charged with implementing the rules it doesn't just work that way you have gotta work with your folks at OMB and the White House and NSC and work through a regulatory plan mm-hmm. so we're working to finalize that plan right now and I can tell you as far as the process goes we are examining the full range of regulatory options whether it's an NPRM a notice a proposed rulemaking where you go out with a lot of questions to the public ask for a lot of comment back or we do something like an interim final rule mm-hmm. um, where it is technically a final rule um, and does go in effect um, at the time but oftentimes is accompanied with uh, additional mm-hmm. questions and or better yet the expectation that there would be refinement along the way and then a final rule issued okay. um, at a subsequent date we're looking at all of our options so
2: proposed rules are on the table though this yes, is not yes. not not just interim final rules um, and any, so, and if if it ends up being uh, interim final rules, will will they be in place uh, subject to comment, or uh, yes. is that the uh, sort of the final uh, input from the from the private sector?
5: No, 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 no. We want, and I want to be very clear. We want public engagement, industry comment, um, even if it is an right. interim final rule. We will seek industry input and comment um, along the way. So by no means do we want to exclude that, that valuable input. And, th- and that's another thing too, while we're collaborating here, and you know, it, from a USG perspective, it, the only way that we're really gonna be able to tackle these issues is with industry input. Um, and particularly with this issue, it has national security implications, but also economic implications Mm -hmm. and we understand that there has to be a balance and I think that in order to really understand what the potential economic implications are you have to be talking to businesses you have to be talking to companies and so therefore I that is something that we welcome and it will be a part of this process so the president has
2: declared a national emergency on on this so you you, this is not something the government just steps in and says here's the way we're going to do it
5: i mean it 's a national emergency, um, and, and we are not undercutting that at all and we have been mandated get this done and you know mm-hmm. or start taking action um, if you can identify um, a regulatory regime and get it in place you know in one hundred and fifty days so there's there 's certainly an urgency there, um, mm-hmm. but again, an urgency with a balance to get this right as well, um, where we want to make sure that we are securing our nation 's supply chain, and we will take a look and honestly. To be clear, like if you take a look at the executive order language, technically the secretary of commerce could act right now outside of a regulatory regime. Um, That authority is given in the executive order with then a requirement of in 150 days to issue implementing rules. Um, And um, and so therefore, I mean, if there's a need, if a national security uh, issue is presented, we're gonna take action regardless of Mm -hmm. a a regulatory regime in place. Um, But with that said, the way that the the structure is set out, 150 days commerce implement. So that's Mm -hmm. what we're seeking to do.
2: To ask about a couple of other uh, areas of of input, Chris mentioned the um, the, the DHS risk assessment that followed the intelligence community risk assessment. Commissioner Starks has jumped out of the gate as a commissioner pushing for uh, uh, I'll use his brand. Find it, fix it, fund it. I like uh, it. Got it. <laughs> I came to the workshop, uh, and uh, this is an issue of finding the, the untrustworthy equipment, uh, fixing it slash replacing it, and uh, and and funding it through public funds. Um, there's sort of a chicken or egg aspect of this. Um, we don't necessarily. The government doesn't necessarily know what's out there mm-hmm. um, until it. Maybe until it puts some money out to say, "Hey, come and get it." Uh, is this sort of uh, is this part of the uh, uh, the thinking behind this approach, or is it something that you can just take the DHS risk assessment report and, and run with
10: that? Yeah, it's a really good um, it's a really good point. And the fact of the matter is, is that you know, from the government's perspective, you know, going back to uh, you know, probably ten, twelve years ago, we have known in particular that. Um, The government has grown increasingly uncomfortable with having certain Chinese telecom equipment coming into our infrastructure, in particular Huawei and ZTE. Um, But it wasn't until the president's executive order in May that there was a specific line drawn in the sand. There are a couple things at the FCC that we are otherwise kind of thinking through in order to uh, create some security, and then I'll come back to your point. Um, We voted very recently on China Mobile. Uh, which was a 214, basically a, a, an operator uh, here in the United States, uh, or, or there was a, um, their license was up, whether they were gonna get a license or not. There are two other ones, China Unicom uh, and China Telecom that also do have 214s. And so trying to think through some of the ramifications of allowing uh, them to operate in our, in our networks. Um, and then there, there's a specific universal service fund, USF, which is a program administered by, uh, about $10 billion program administered by the FCC. And we have also done a supply chain in PRM that we're starting to work through whether we're going to allow uh, USF dollars to ultimately go to purchase Chinese telecom equipment. The NDAA also has focused us on this issue as well as a government-wide perspective. But what I wanted to, and what I've done in my six months here, that I've focused uh, here at the FCC, is that all of those are prospective, looking forward, and I completely agree with those, uh, and, and um, full-throated believe we need to focus on those security risks. But I've also focused on the fact that we have a lot of, in particular, Huawei equipment, with a number of small rural carriers, uh, predominantly out in in the middle uh, of the country, heading out west a little bit. Uh, and so this isn't just a future threat and we can't just treat this asymmetrically where we think, oh, let's just make sure we focus on this problem going forward. We actually know that there is infrastructure in our networks right now that we need to focus on. Uh, and so there is a 5G leadership act that's proposed in the Senate. Right now, we're trying to think through what the, what the number should be. To your point, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, because we have had some trouble finding the carriers that have this equipment in their network to raise their hand and come forward. Uh, and so um, uh, actually figuring out the scope of the problem, how many carriers have it, what is the extent of it uh, in their network. Uh, is something that we're trying to think through and something that we're at the FCC on a little bit of a fact-finding mission that I believe is where we need to be. And then the other part of the question that we're working with uh, our our sister agencies on is really the question of, um, uh, and some of the national security expertise that they have, is it something where we can only focus on Um, uh, the core of our network, the routers and switches uh, that control that? Uh, Or do we need to make sure that we replace any insecure uh, equipment that goes out into our radios to the very edge of our network and of course the dollars that would need to be marshaled in order to to replace the whole network versus part of the core is something that folks are also trying to think through. And so um, getting folks to come forward and raise their hand and, and show us what they have, I think you probably are ultimately going to need some some money, some type of appropriation from Congress before uh, we really get our heads around the universe of this issue, but it's something that a lot of us are thinking through and it's
1: a critical issue. I mean, I think part of this is that you're seeing the government rounding the corner in an accelerating manner on a 10-year conversation yeah. about supply chain and yeah. telecommunications. We've Agreed been with talking that. about these things for a long time. We have more information now, we have a broader, I mean, just supply chain in general, the, the general pace of understanding of what needs to be done on supply chain whether it's you know completely separate from this conversation just in general more information available better risk assessment tools better ability to accept and manage risk you know this is just a manifestation of that and you're seeing it done in coordination now at the operational level at the policy level and the strategic level so uh i actually see all of these activities as fundamentally good things because you're going to have a lot more certainty and clarity out of government that says these are the you know the policy conversation's over. This is how we are going to act and engage and manage risk going forward. So uh, I think it'll a- answer a lot of questions. And this is not you know it's not just happening in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. These are the conversations that are happening across uh, the globe. And from a security perspective, my sense of things is that um, it's pretty uniformly understood the risk posed by certain untrustworthy companies mm-hmm. emanating from certain countries that have weaponized their tech sector. That's, a, uh, that's what I've, I've used that term before. Um, but there are competing um, economic and other uh, interests that, that kind of create a tension. Uh, we don't necessarily have that tension, we just have to have more clarity within uh, the, the, the government priority space. That said, um, we have to be very careful, I think, in uh, the last panel was an excellent one on this regard, we have to be very careful that when we take these actions stepping forward, that it's not um, seen as just taking bad options off the table. Because mm-hmm. God help us if we take all bad options off the table and there aren't any good options left. Yeah. So we have to identify what those mechanisms uh, we can pursue and encourage and support and incentivize that will promote uh, and really take advantage of US, the US innovation base. I, I really love the open ran conversation because it takes something down to the very basic dumb metal perspective mm-hmm. and allows innovation to flourish over the top and software defined networks and cloud and coding these are just the things that the US Silicon Valley our partners in, in Israel our partners in, in, in Europe really excel at mm-hmm. and this is where I think the future is, this is where the competition base is. So, if we can figure out what introducing competition back into the equation, not just here, but principally uh, in, in other geographics or geographies, um, it, it can take, it can undercut some of the artificial economic advantages mm-hmm. that uh, Huawei, for instance, enjoys from subsidizing 125% mm-hmm. um, uh, financing, mm-hmm. integrated tech stacks. You know, those are the things that that we can, if we can, you know, put the right sort of friction in there, we can compete and we can win.
2: Yeah, so that's actually segue into the uh, into another element that was a big part of your keynote and has obviously been a big part of today's discussions, and that is the partnership between companies mm-hmm. and uh, and the and the government, not just the U.S. government, but other like-minded governments. Um, so these companies are the front-line defense against. You know, tier one intelligence services, um, and we can't, to put it very bluntly, we can't we can't secure our societies without these companies um, on the on the front lines uh, doing what they can to to
1: secure I'd, us. I'd, I'd almost fix that a little bit and say. These blanks are on the front lines against <laughs> tier one. Intel, you could say, yeah. uh, election officials,
2: right? Uh, right.
1: State, and local governments. Yeah, I mean, it is.
2: So, and it, yes, that's right. To broaden it, uh, the companies that are the suppliers uh, of 5G equipment, the, the carriers that implement it, the and they were all represented in the in the earlier discussions today. The 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 producers of devices on the edge that are that will bring it to life. They're they're up against the Russians, the Chinese, the uh, North Koreans, Iranians, et cetera. So how do we, given that we need them to secure us, uh, how how do the, your three agencies partner with them, uh, and and granted, there two of these agencies have regulatory uh, um, uh, powers here. How do you how do you partner with these companies uh, and 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 with each other to uh, to to make it sort of a one-team-one-fight approach.
5: Well, from a Department of Commerce standpoint, and we welcome and have our office of business liaison and others that are constantly going out and talking to, to businesses and specifically what concerns they are seeing um, as they are trying to secure their supply chain. Also, I think you know it's just helpful to have um, industry meetings um, and, and to touch base from time to time. And we've been doing a little bit of that with respect to supply chain to just say, well, what areas of your supply chain do you think could potentially fall under this executive order? We know it's really broad, but where do you see the vulnerabilities? Where do you see um, what functionalities because it's not just this piece of equipment it's this a piece of equipment used in this certain way in this type of infrastructure that suddenly creates um, some type of risk and so helping them kind of call down and, and identify the, the types of transactions and the type of um, equipment and their, their networks is really helpful to us um, and I know DHS has been very engaged um, with yeah. industry mm-hmm. on determining kind of those vulnerabilities in and of itself but certainly I we open dialogue through our office of business liaison also working directly with the bureaus whether it's bis and the export controls clearly Mm -hmm. with the uh, addition of huawei on the entity list there's been a lot of questions that have come into them and they are they listen to that and, Mm and will respond accordingly um and so i do think that it's just encouraging the the industry to be proactive in reaching out to the department and then the department will also be proactive in reaching out as well but sometimes we can't see the blind spots and so it's really helpful to have industry engaged
1: and taking those opportunities when we engage and really operationalizing them i mentioned earlier it's public private partnership has been a cliche in this town for a while but it's about advancing it past just information sharing and and all that good stuff, but really looking at what are the inherent advantages in the US government? Well, we have exquisite intelligence. Okay, let's share that over when we know something bad's happening. What are some risk management frameworks that NIST is able to develop on a consensus basis with, with the partners, you know, much like they did with the cybersecurity framework? Mm-hmm. But, but even beyond that, what does the Department of Defense have? What does the Department of Interior have? A lot of land. What can we do with land? Well, let's go set up some test ranges and bring the the equipment manufacturers and deployers in, in the in the in the uh, comms companies, and let's see what network slicing can really do in a real world environment where nobody's going to get hurt. Let's just see what we can test here, and experimentation, really driving innovation by by experimenting with it. Uh, those are, I think, that's the real advantage that we have uh, that we can keep uh, that we can keep pushing on. But again, working it back to the beginning of who knows what 5G deployments are gonna look like better than the comms companies, the telcos. So have them come and say, hey, here's the architectures we're thinking about. What I'm really thinking about, in addition to what the actual communications infrastructure looks like, what we're trying to get a better understanding of, what does utilization and dependency on that infrastructure look like from the perspective of other infrastructure sectors? So I wanna know how transportation's gonna be different. I wanna know how public health and safety is gonna be different. I wanna know how logistics is gonna be different. What are the things that are gonna be enabled by 5G and do we actually have the life safety frameworks in place? What else do I need to work with NIST on from an operational technology, from an industrial control systems perspective to make sure that we're anticipating so we're not sitting there you know, 2025 and kinda of saying, wow, we should have seen that coming. Now let's get let's get on that today. And again, that's part of that secure tomorrow uh, mentality that we're bringing. Yeah, and so I would echo, uh, you know, my colleagues. I,
10: I certainly think that um, 5G right now is presenting a good opportunity for us to think through the security that we need now, rather than doing it on the back end. In terms of partnerships, you know, the telecom companies, um, but also, you know, again, back to in particular those. Um, Rural carriers that we know have otherwise insecure equipment in their infrastructure, we need to be able to work with them again to figure out what is, um, you know, how we can correct the problem. Where we're talking about um, uh, a rip and replace is obviously something that some folks have started to think through. That's what in fact is, is part of the 5G Leadership Act that's pending in the Senate right now. Uh, and, and so trying to think through how do we work with those carriers. We know the equipment manufacturers are also starting to think through if we are in a world where we're going to rip and replace a whole lot of equipment. First of all, we need to make sure that uh, customers are not otherwise interrupted. We know it's really important that they have the communications that they need, but it's also something where how can we do that quickly and effectively uh, at a wholesale, um, uh, you know, a wholesale market where you're trying to rip and replace a lot of infrastructure and and smooth it quickly um, uh, to get to a secure communication space. Um, is really important. And then something that I think w- was nibbled around as well is you know, making sure that we're starting to think through how some of the software folks uh, are really going to help us come to a more secure 5G world. I think that's a really ripe space um, for, for, uh, for partnership and for folks to take some leadership there.
2: Let's dig in on that a little bit more. So uh, Chris mentioned that DHS is a sector-specific agency for the communications sector and the IT sector. The FCC has jurisdiction pretty uncontroversially over the communication sector. Uh, when it gets into the IT sector or certain internet-based uh, applications, uh, it's, it's, at least, it's, at, it's at least controversial. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, and then the Commerce Department's, uh, execu- the new executive order uh, covers all of it. Um, so, discuss. Who who does what? How, how do you work all that out? When you talk about transportation and you know telehealth and uh, who's got jurisdiction over what and how, you're recognizing that we're all interested in protecting the American people, how do you how do you work that out? Um,
1: I'll do the easy part. <laughs> uh, so the way I work um, is that I, I kind of I see frameworks everywhere. At least I try to see frameworks everywhere. I try to see a problem and then scope the left right parameters and then that provides the context by which we can tackle whether it's a commerce action you you're they're going to do their thing but we help set the the parameters part of what we did I mentioned earlier the National Risk Management Center launched last year one of the in addition to establishing the incident or the uh, the ICT Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force was we embarked on an endeavor to get a better understanding of systemic risk so, what are those things that are truly nationally significant from a national security, economic security, and public health and safety perspective that, if degraded, disrupted, or otherwise affected, would have truly that national level impact? Um, and so, uh, about a, three months ago, we released what was known as the National Critical Functions Set. And so, it takes this concept of 16 critical infrastructure sectors and breaks it down from more of a less less of a Uh, organization or a building or an asset in more of a what are the services, the functions, the cross-cutting interdependencies to spot um, some of those things that may have historically fallen through the gaps. Industrial control systems is a great example. It's not a sector, but it ties sectors together where you find it within sectors. So 55 critical uh, national critical functions that again, it provides a risk architecture by which we can get a better understanding of where risk is. So with these critical these national critical functions, what I can do is I can take that, okay, why is 5G, what, what is gonna be different in each of these functions as a result of deploying 5G? Who is gonna be utilizing the capabilities? And then are we prepared? Do we know how to engage them? Do we have the right sort of mechanisms? Um, and then we also used that as the basis for the risk assessment under the EO. I was able to look at about seven or eight different national critical functions on the comm side and then distill that down to those, those five roles of, um, you know, it, it from a, again, from a system administrator perspective, local access, transmission, storage, uh, processing, and system management. Uh, Again, these are the, we've got to have an orientation by which we can start making these informed enforcement and engagement. And then I just kind of go, you got it now.
5: And with that, you got it now, Mm -hmm. we take that, but it's not over. We still have dialogue back and forth um, about, okay, what exactly does this mean? We understand DHS has an excellent ability to assess and do risk management. We want their input. as well. I mean, our silent partner here, the, our, our fellow from the Intel community, is a huge um, uh, player. And we go back and forth and ask questions about the reports and the analysis and the threats as well. Um, but you're asking, you know, how do you, how do you? start tackling these issues. I mentioned before these sub-policy coordinating committees. Uh, there's a lot of them, and they tackle various areas. That's what of I was cyber. laughing
1: about earlier, and I looked over and my chief of staff was like, don't do it, don't do it. Yeah. I've actually asked my team, like, can you please enumerate all the PCCs and sub-PCCs that exist within the NSA? And they're like, we tried. Does,
5: does yeah. anybody know? I don't know if there's a spreadsheet that long, yeah. um, <laughs> but there's quite, there, there's a lot. And, and But with that said, I at least for the ones that I participated on, they are well organized. And well coordinated, and um, and definitely are looking to organize and be that central kind of clearinghouse on to make sure that all the agencies one are at the table, two that their best their equities are, are weighed in on these specific issues, and then there are task and do-outs. You know, you're going back to your agency, um, expected to produce. Um, a certain you know, output and that is to feed into the larger, whether it's a policy determination or whether if we're executing on policy, mm-hmm. what the, the bottom line is. So it, it's not kind of a free-for-all <laughs> in, in government. There is definitely centralized organization and then within the, amongst the departments, we each have our lane um, and we make sure that we deliver on those things, but ultimately it's feeding up to address more of a centralized problem.
10: And, and you know, I want to answer the question that I want to answer, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is, you know, what I think is most important to the American people um, is that they're really not interested in the turf wars that have happened in this space for a long time. And you mentioned that as the kind of framing part of our conversation today. I think it's exactly right because the American people don't really care about, oh, DHS is supposed to have this, and DOD is supposed to have this, and oh, FCC, they're supposed to be the telecom people. Why is it they're not fully in charge? Like, what they wanna know is that folks are really thinking about security uh, and are making sure that the best choices are made for for everyday Americans. And so, um, you know, the Executive Steering Committee uh, that all of us are on right here The task forces that have been set up, uh, you know, the specific do outs that are coming from the president's executive order. Um, The good news for everyday Americans is that there is good playing in the sandbox now uh, that folks are working on these really complex Multi variable calculus problems. Um, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, we're an independent agency, of course, uh, a, as opposed to folks that are in the executive branch. Um, and so, where Congress specifically gives us statutory points that they want us to act on, that's what we do, again, to come back to this 5G Leadership Act. Um, that specifically says that, hey, FCC, you're going to be the folks that are going to be anointed to fund how this rip and replace is going to go. That's something that the FCC will do should Congress task us to do that. Um, but it is, it, we have to rely on national security experts, on economic experts. We bring network um, and, and carrier um, um, specific knowledge here. And the good news for everyone is that we're working collaboratively.
2: Would you say it's different? And I'll just say we had, a, we had an event here at this, in the same room uh, in February we had an earlier but similar discussion. And it strikes me that, uh, that the interagency is a, is a lot more organized right now than it was even in February, so it was just a few months ago. Um, is that correct? Am I, uh, it, and if, 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 uh, if correct, how, what's different right now as, as compared to a couple
1: months ago? I mean, there's no one single moment or Thing It's just, uh, you know, this is good government in action. It's the operational agencies, you know, recognizing that the National Security Council is a policy coordination process and they set the policy, but there's actually day-to-day operational engagement that we're already doing. The good government piece is, well, let's do it together. So if DOD and DHS are gonna do R&D and experimentation, well, wouldn't it make a whole lot of sense if we coordinated those efforts? And saw so if we couldn't find some efficiencies and some economies of scale, I may, might be able to save a little bit of money by putting my requirements in the DOD process, and they may be able to do the same. Standards, it's a great way for standards. Mm-hmm. NIST, state, everyone does a little bit of standards. Well, how about we get all of our standards efforts together, look how we might be able to cover the waterfront on this 3GPP meeting as opposed to that meeting, uh, again, it's it's pulling everything together like I think the American taxpayer would expect us mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. and actually doing it.
2: Uh, just to put a fine point on, I'll mention something that you mentioned in your in your opening, uh, um, and that is the uh, the CISRIC, which is uh, for the benefit of the audience. It's the worst acronym in a city <laughs> of terrible acronyms. Nope, nope. <laughs> oh, no, you no, got one they're better. They're
1: the NPPD, that's the word. <laughs> <Right, laughs> that's right, right, right. That's right. the name, the old name of my organization. Yeah, <laughs> I've I, forgotten I, what it stood I'll said admit, for. it sounded more like a Soviet Politburo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Turns out it was actually a chemical compound that the Soviet <laughs> intelligence agencies would use to chemically tag uh, marks. Right. Right. in Not,
2: Moscow and right. elsewhere, yeah. The, this, we're, I think we're all glad that there's an agency uh, and with our, with, the, with the inaugural director of that agency here on this panel, um, that you can understand what the agency does by its name. Um, so here, here's one, uh, the Communication Security, Reliability and Interoperability Council. Council, yeah. <laughs> it's the FCC's advisory committee that brings in private sector and, and nonprofit and governmental experts to advise the FCC on communication security reliability and interoperability. Um, the Cisric is in its seventh iteration, It mm-hmm. just got rechartered uh, um, a couple months ago. It just had its first meeting uh, uh, July 19th of the new iteration and two of its working groups focus on 5G security. The last Cisric put out probably the most comprehensive uh, 5G security report um, anywhere in the world. Uh, with help of DHS and some other uh, uh, luminaries. Um, what do you, what do you, what does this group and the three different agencies want to see out of this CISRIC and its, uh, its two working groups on 5G security? How will it inform what the FCC does? How will it inform uh, what Commerce does on the executive order? And, and how will it inform what the sector-specific agency does? Um, i 'll just throw that out there it 's near and dear to my heart it 's a great group yeah. of people who don 't get uh, compensated to do this work, uh, but they put a lot
10: of work into yeah. putting you know, and kudos towards. to you for your you know, long help and service on uh, on that uh, I mean I know from the FCC perspective um, and the chairman would tell you the same thing. I mean we really do rely on them. Um, this is not just one of those kind of Uh, you know, light work uh, councils, they really are uh, a valued um, uh, council, we rely on them to propose a lot of technical um, um, uh, proposals to us, we do digest those. I think the most important thing that I'm going to be looking for is that they do start to deliver us some um, uh, actionable. Um, uh, deliverables that we can start to move on and also solving some of the issues that we know the vulnerabilities that go back to some of our legacy problems um, and making sure that uh, where there are fake base stations uh, that's something that I would really encourage them to focus on 3GPP uh, as well and getting through some of those standards is something that we're going to be relying on them uh, and then something else that I know is mentioned here today that I would encourage them to also think about really is kind of helping us think through uh, network slicing because it is just going to be mm-hmm. such a big important we know that um, concerning all the devices that we're going to have uh y- y- you know the the exposure plane that we have is just going to be amplified and uh, network slicing we know is going to be part of the solution and something that we really need folks to uh, help us think through that's
2: great how how can this how can this uh, an an advisory committee at an independent agency inform what uh what uh, the Commerce Department is doing. It's often NIST is part of these deliberations and um, has been in the past. Is it something you guys will be looking for in the EO implementation?
5: I, I mean, for the supply chain implementation, just I, mean, I went and read that the uh, 5G report that mm-hmm. the CISRIC 6 um, mm-hmm. completed in their addendum as well. And it was very helpful to understand exactly what are the vulnerabilities that 5G lays on top, right? And, and, and with this 5G capability, what are the additional vulnerabilities and threat? points that that 5g um exposes so it was very helpful mm-hmm. uh, in that sense and i those types of reports i think will certainly be a part of mm-hmm. kind of our compendium of of knowledge that we have as we are looking at okay what transactions should we really be focusing on um and, and which ones warrant additional scrutiny mm-hmm. um with that said also we, through our nist and other you know groups within the department uh, we rely heavily on NIST, um, and i and, uh and, would be bemoaned, I'm sad that I haven't mentioned more about NIST this whole entire time. It should have been a NIST uh, uh, (laughs) rallying cry because they are so involved in everything that we do at the department. Mm. Um, And they touch so many different areas, um, both setting uh, standards domestically, but also informing international standards uh, bodies as well. And so NIST is uh, certainly a group that we will use. And I know that they reach out to various um, Mm -hmm. agencies and departments and, groups uh, when it comes to the standard setting um that they will be doing and so certainly the work of CISRIC and others would be something that NIST would engage Mm -hmm. in to make sure that they are also looking at those areas as well
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i I mean CISRIC is a uh going to be a key part of uh the the 5g risk management conversation going over i see the task force as being more of a framework setting and actually building tools and capabilities. And when we hit thorny technical issues, chop it over the transom to Cisric. Uh, to it's almost with the standup of Cisric 7, it's like Voltron finally coming together. <laughs> We've got all the pieces we need for federal government industry collaboration, the technical study side, the risk management assessment side, it all comes together into actual uh, action and deployment. Uh, so you know, really excited and uh, that, it, that that the the notice went out earlier this week, and uh, there's gonna be a lot of a lot of good work going on in the next six months uh, at a minimum.
2: In a lot of cases, it's the same players who are, you know,
1: yeah, they are, remind playing me that in both in quite both often.
2: places. So um,
1: I, And I tell you what, this this is a this is a funny point because um, there are a lot of people in this town and industry that uh, do a lot of kind of pro bono advisory work for the federal government. Yeah, maybe it's in their job descriptions, but uh, it's almost a no good deed goes unpunished. There are a few of them in this room right now and they know who they are. <laughs> um, but they say, hey, you know, we're, we're doing a lot. You know, I think we're making a lot of progress. And I said, yeah, you are, and we're gonna ask more of you. So how can we do this together to make sure mm-hmm. that we're, we're achieving the outcomes we want, that we're not being wasteful or duplicative? Uh, but, but ultimately, everybody gets what's at stake here. Uh, and the I just could not be um, happier with with the outcomes that we've achieved over the last several the last last year alone, and just the, again that acceleration, you can just feel it that we're really building up towards uh, one, issuing you know having much more clarity and certainty on the government yeah. side, providing a platform for American innovation to take off, really closing down any remaining risk hole or, or you know uh, risk issues across our infrastructure, pushing and helping our uh, uh, international partners get to where they need to be to manage their risk. I mean, we're, we're right on the cusp of that.
2: Just, I'll close out with uh, with a final question um, about where we need to go. We've talked a lot about, there is there is quite a bit of uh, progress here, but in the, uh, the industry panels, we're talking a lot about virtualization and uh, the open RAN uh, network slicing, the fact that there's a very robust market uh, that exists in the world uh, that's, that's very competitive in that space. Um, so, I'll just I'll close out with, uh, with Cisric and the EO and you know, the Supply Chain Task Force uh, and all the other activities in mind. Um, what do you all need from the, uh, from the other agencies? What do you need from each other to help advance that competitive, diverse market of trusted suppliers and innovation?
1: Or right. Cis are gonna provide yeah. the answers. So <laughs> it, it, it really is, I see it, um, we're gonna take care of the underlying risk. We'll get that part squared away, but we have to ensure that we're creating the conditions and the, uh, the ecosystem for American innovation to flourish. So it's, 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 a, it's actually a lot bigger than this. It's about mm-hmm. the National Economic Council, it's about the right. Domestic Policy Council, it's about the US Trade Rep. Uh, it's about the uh, D- Department of Treasury. It's everybody coming together and saying, what are the levers that we have as government to boost, uh, uh, not just uh, again, not just American, but it's, it's this it, I'm going to back out here for a second. Where I've ultimately landed on, op- as I'm seeing autocratic nations operationalize their tech sector, uh, ultimately what we are in, and 5G is just a, cur- a proxy for the broader conversation, but this is really a defending democracy conversation. The way technology is being used uh, by autocratic states for surveillance, uh, broader oppression. Rob Strayer talks about the imprisonment of Uyghurs. You know, we are in a pivotal, pivotal moment where we can either allow autocratic states to proliferate their technologies that are gonna enable more countries that are on a tipping point, or we can push our own solutions out there into the world democracies can push their solutions out there to hold the line uh, and really encourage uh, democracies, uh, democracies to continue to flourish. So what do we do? There is an industrial policy conversation I think is out in front of us. It says, what are the conditions that we need to create as US government to generate, incentivize, and, and uh, put that market forward that is gonna allow that to happen?
2: And is that, that, is, is that coming together in government?
1: We have the again, core, I, sort the, of core you know, you're domestic. seeing part of this in action right now. And so I would footstomp that. You know, the last thing
10: I would say probably in closing out is that um, you know, we are all working hard, we're collaborating. I think it's going to be important, and, I, and again, I see this in particular on the chicken and egg problem that you talked about, where um, what is gonna be important is that we at the government start to offer some very clear and transparent paths forward. Uh, and I think that's going to help uh, a lot of folks. I think there are carriers out there right now who have insecure inf- inf- insecure equipment in their infrastructure, and they are remaining uh, uh, cloaked a little bit because they're worried about what's going to happen if they come out of, you know, I'll say a proverbial shadow. I won't say a real shadow. Um, and so if we can set forth some clarifying rules that you know, we are going to, we the US government are going to be able to uh, pay to rip and replace that equipment. I think you'll have a lot more people that are going to come forward. And so the more clarity that we can start uh, to have and to show people, um, I think it's going to be helpful uh, and, and will redound to everybody's benefit.
5: And from the Department of Commerce standpoint, I think our, our job is to make sure that we get the balance right, to get the, the, the balance between the national security imperatives along with the economic um, security as well, and, and develop that universe of trusted partners and making sure that as we are going forward and we are taking action and we are developing regulations and rules, that we're doing so in a targeted, thoughtful manner that will not hamper U.S. companies or trusted partners' ability to innovate. Because ultimately, not only domestically, but internationally, we need to make sure that we've created an environment that'll allow them to innovate, and also for for us to work together. And so I would say just in areas where we can continue to improve doing exactly what we're doing right now, it's nice to be able to sit on stage and talk about how we're collaborating. And And it's positive to see that we're doing it. And I think we just have to keep doing it more. So as much as we've seen it ramp up over the last year or so, I think continuing to accelerate that collaboration is going to be key in really moving this forward.
2: All right, so I think we might hold you guys to that and uh, and maybe bring you back and see how we're doing in uh, another another year or so. Uh, Let me ask everybody to give them a round of applause. This has been a great discussion. Um, And I uh, I I think there's some refreshments outside.